This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game from Fantasy Flight Games. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have an episode tonight that is going to transmute your very understanding as we mix, mash, refine, and distill some serious knowledge into podcast form hopefully without blowing ourselves up in the process, because we are talking about the alchemy skill tonight in diecasting. Also, after seeing the amazing positive responses to our newest segment, last episode we've decided to fast-track the return of DM Eric for another exciting dive into the recreation of the Eberron campaign setting for Genesis in Eberron Reforged. And, of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to the maniac in our own alchemical laboratory, whose hair is always standing on end and whose fingers are always stained with sulphur. Actually, the more I think about it, I'm thinking that that's probably going to be Cheeto dust. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's GM Chris. Chris, how are you doing, my mad scientist friend? Good. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> oh God, it is sulfur. Um, <laughs> um, at least what all my babysitters said growing up. That bullet's covered in sulfur. My God. No, 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 no. Um, but. <laughs> But the, uh, we really don't have Cheetos here. Like, it's not a massive thing like it is in the States. Uh, we've got a version of it. But it's it's nowhere near as nice as the stuff that you guys do. You know, it, only only if it's – we make it nicer through artificial means because that's the thing about artificial <laughs> – like, and, okay, so have you – you've? I was assuming, obviously, because of the joke, you've, 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 you've enjoyed Cheetos. You've tasted them. Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay. okay. Do, you, do you prefer the crunchy kind or the puffy kind? Um, the puffy kind, I think. That's that's because you're a good man. That's because you're a good, you're a good, good man. Um, okay, so we we went to um my freshman year in college when I was in the dorms. Mm. Um, before I got my own place, so I was staying in the dorms my freshman year. Mm-hmm. There was a, a a cute little girl who was in the in my dorm, um, and we called her Cheeto. Okay? Right. Is this going to be a G-rated story, um, Chris? it's just it's just weird she um and it's it's she was she was nice as all get out she was a pretty little thing Mm -hmm. um she was clearly intelligent but she had an addiction to cheese with a z okay artificial cheese 
Um, her, her roommate told us that she would literally go through a bag of Cheetos a day, a full family size bag. Really? And she would go to the local bargain grocery mart and she would buy, uh, the, the cheapo 10 cents a box packs of macaroni and cheese, (laughs) you know, that have the the stir in cheese powder basically. Yeah. 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 And she would, she would, you know, spend like $20 on those rip them open, take the bags of cheese powder out and throw all the rest away. And when she was studying or doing whatever, she would just mm. rip open one of those bags and with her fingers, she would lick it and stick it in there oh, and just oh. eat, eat the cheese powder. No okay? way. And so, so <laughs> her, her fingertips were permanently stained this vibrant Ugh. neon orange. <laughs> um, and and the, the, the poor girl, she seems sad. She, 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 she could never get a date. And, is it is it any wonder and, why? I, and it's like oh, it's like I wonder why. But, I mean, it's a shame because she was let's say she was intelligent, she was funny, she was attractive, but mm-hmm. nobody could seem to get over that. So <laughs> that's not a you surprise, know, man. You know, wherever you are in the world, Cheeto, I don't even, I don't even I don't even remember your real name. That's how that's how crazy it 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 really was over twenty years ago. Now, wherever you are in the world, Cheeto, I, I wish you well. Do you think she's really watching or listening to this podcast? One can dream. <laughs> one, 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 one can dream as she has, you know, Cheeto stained dice in her little bag. Um, but I, I raise, I raise a cup to Cheeto, and 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 Huli, as we hmm. raise a cup, yes. we do have something else to raise a cup about, do we not? Yes, Chris, we certainly do. This past week, we have celebrated the first year anniversary of the Forge. Yay! Uh, But it also marks the first year anniversary of the Genesis Foundry. It's hard to believe that uh, a full year has gone by. I know. Wow. Yeah. And and so much has gone on in that time. I I know. God. Mm. And, and, you know, one year of amazing products on the Foundry as well. Yeah, Um, true. True. Very true. Honestly, with a year having gone by, Huli, it is time to discuss something that we have had in the planning for almost as long mm. uh some some serious some serious annual recognition of the amazing foundry content that's been released in the last 12 months that's right we've talked about this in past shows but here at the forge we are proud to announce the first annual forthcoming forge awards uh with uh, the deep voice included with varied categories of awards we will be honoring the best of the best from the past 12 months nominees will be voted on by the hosts and our amazing patreons but chris how does a product get nominated well that's easy if you are listening and you want to nominate your product or if you are listening and you want to nominate someone else's product to just a great product you think deserves to be nominated all you have to do is send an email to forgegenesis at d20radio.com with the subject of Forge Awards nomination. Now, the product must have been released between July 31st of 2019 and July 31st of 2020. And, you know, you don't have to, but we would encourage you to in your email. Tell us why you want to nominate the product and, and, and also, most importantly, for what category you want to nominate it for. Um, but uh, Huli, what what are our categories for the Forge Awards? Well, we have a few. Um, the first one is Best Adventure. Now, this is for a full adventure, um, a, a module or adventure seeds, regardless of the setting. Length really doesn't matter. 
Uh, and yes, I said I'd keep this G-rated. <laughs> um, best setting is the second one. This is for uh, full new settings for Genesis. Uh, our next category is best general supplement, whether it's uh, an equipment guide, GM's tools, new mechanical systems, or anything else that it is not an adventure or a setting. And our last category, which is the one that I'm most excited about, is best layout and design. Now, it's pretty self-explanatory, but for those amazing products in any category that blew you away with their illustrations, their layout, and overall beauty and design, this is the one for you. Now, all nominations, guys, need to be received by August 31st, 2020. After that, um, voting will commence in the following month month for each category, again, uh, among me and Hooli and our patrons. And there is only one major rule, just so that you all are all aware. No one can vote for a product that they themselves contributed to. All right. Furthermore, uh, I think it's worth saying in the interest of fairness, guys, the hosts of this podcast, we will recuse any of our own products from the awards. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, happy, you know, again, we're the ones running the awards. Doesn't make sense, but <laughs> honestly, th- that, that's how the voting will happen. And we will announce the winners, uh, in September, not only will winners get a shiny digital forge award winner badge mm-hmm. to slap on your product, mm-hmm. but we've got some other nifty swag prepared as well. <laughs> Very excited about. Yes, we do. Now we do have one other award that I have to mention as well, uh, but it can't be nominated. And it won't be voted on in the normal way. Well, whatever do you mean? Well, look, um, this fifth 4G award, as we're going to call it, uh, which is basically the best in show award. Now, it's regardless of category, you know, any product, doesn't matter what it is, any product can win. This is the award given to the best overall product of the past 12 months, as determined by the creators on the foundry themselves. That's right. This is very important to us. The the Best in Show Award, 4G, will be voted on exclusively by the authors who released product on the Foundry mm-hmm. within the past year. Yep. And if you are a creator who has submitted a Foundry product from July 31st, 2019 to July 31st, 2020, then you automatically have a vote. Um, this, is, this is basically the best product of the year as determined by your very own writing peers um and and the only rule again is that a creator can't vote for a product they contributed to exactly and just one other point as well uh and uh chris markham i'm looking at you (laughs) is that if you have created more than one product you're still only entitled to one vote so you've got to remember that as well so yes if you've done multiple different products one vote only so uh, so keep that in mind that's correct. And, you know, the, the, the Best in Show Award is very much inspired by one of my favorite RPG awards, uh, which is the Diana Jones Awards, mm. um, where, you know, basically, I, I, you know, Huli and I really talked about this, and we do feel it's important, you know, while we have this cool award process, and, and we're going to vote, and there's going to be the normal nomination process, and, and, and our patrons will vote, that everyone has a chance to be recognized by their peers. Yeah. And, um, 
so that's that's extremely important to us. But I'm absolutely thrilled, man. I um, <laughs> dude, the the four G's 2020 is happening. <laughs> so so get, your, get your get your nominations in, guys. Get your nominations in. Very exciting stuff, indeed. Uh, oh, I can't wait. Uh, this is something we've been talking about for God, what since it it very we very very first started the idea of the of the the forge. Um, so be sure to get your nominations in. Uh, you can find more details about the Forge Awards on our website at forgegenesis.com and at our various social media platforms. So uh, check those out. It's going to be fun. I can't wait. <laughs> Coolio for Julio. So, Senor Julio. Um, I think we should probably get right into this episode because we have some cool announcements and some new Foundry products to talk about. You want to get into some news? I think that's a really good plan, so let's get into it in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? I would love to, because our podcast of the week is one of D20 Radio's actual play podcast, which uses Genesis, no less, the mm-hmm. What Comes After podcast. Uh, this post-apocalyptic actual play extravaganza follows a group of survivor- survivors five years after the event that destroyed the world, mm. but things are still getting weirder. <laughs> um, it's a great show. It's a lot of fun. And guys, any chance you can get to listen to Genesis live play, take it. It's, it's, it's a fun show, and I love the adventure these guys are on. Yeah. So check out one co- what comes after. Um, and you can find it and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. Excellent. And we've got some exciting news before we get into the Foundry releases. This past week during Gen Con, uh, which is all being held virtually, of course, uh, the amazing Sam Gregor Stewart, RPG manager for the newly christened Edge Studios, joined FFG Live to talk about the RPG that, uh, all, all the RPGs, sorry, that are transitioning from FFG to Edge, including, of course, Genesis. Now, in this uh, this thirty minute interview, Sam talked about what he could, dropping some really cool news uh, and some uh, some strong hints about what's to come. And fans of the Forge podcast on Facebook will have seen the announcement, as well as a play by play commentary on the news uh, as it was announced. Uh, big thanks to Keith Gapple, by the way, for uh, taking the duties on uh, with that one, as uh, Chris was uh, off working. And, uh, well, I was in Australia asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Thank you, Keith. But no, dude, it was an interesting interview. Um, Not not all the news we had hoped for. Mm. Um, It's clear that the transition of FFG RPG's uh, library um, to Edge is taking some time, and they're still ironing things out. Um, We we did not get any announcements on Star Wars, sadly. Mm. Um, but we did get the confirmation of the continuation and the actual next book for the Legend of the Five Rings RPG, mm-hmm. um, with happy to hear Alexis Dykema returning as the, at the proverbial helm as developer. Yep, yep. Um, so that was wonderful to hear. Mm. But in the interest of brevity um, and the focus of our show, Huli, because folks can go watch the interview, yep. um, c- what were the key takeaways regarding Genesis? 
Look, um, basically, the foundry is going to continue, which is the one thing that everybody was sort of worried about. Um, but, uh, you know, few of us really had any doubts, to be honest, but Sam boldly said that they have plans to continue it. Uh, there just seems to be a little bit of legalese updating that uh, needs to be done first. Understandable, yeah. Yeah, totally understandably. Um, also, uh, though he didn't explicitly say it, because maybe they can't, but um, he pretty much completely animated that the next full setting for Genesis will be Twilight Imperium, which I can't wait for. How did I know that you'd be excited by that? But anyway, um, Sam, during the interview, uh, did wax on about uh, his love of uh, everything space opera. Uh, so it's uh, it's pretty clear to us that uh, that's what um, is on the horizon. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of happy people about that fact as well. Uh, he also alluded to a return to the Android setting, which was cool, uh, with additional material for Shadow of the Beanstalk, uh, but kind of shrugged off any further dealings with Realms of Terranoth, unless FFG was doing something else uh, with that property. Which, you know, the hilariously funny non-announcement, if you uh, were watching the uh, the, the in-flight uh, report, which was uh, lots of fun, technical issues aside, um, and, uh, you know, they, they basically announced that there will be a new version of Descent. Uh, which is based in Terranoth. So, uh, you know, who knows what they might have in that realm uh, in the future, which would be really exciting. <laughs> now, Sam also did state that being away from FFG, there are the possibilities of doing other licenses uh, mm. with Genesis. So what that means, who knows? But ultimately, Sam advised uh, all of us to just stay tuned uh, for more and that uh, he was quite happy with the new studio and he was thrilled to be captaining the ship once again so thank you very much sam for the interview it was fantastic if you uh, haven't seen it yet uh, definitely jump on uh, our facebook page uh, we've got a link to it there uh, have a listen uh, it's well worth it and uh, yeah maybe you'll pick up on something that we missed i don't know well, they can uh, rewatch it right on FFG's Twitch stream. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're out there in the internet land surfing away and clicking on all the things, be sure to head over to the Genesis Foundry at DriveThruRPG where you can find the latest and greatest Foundry releases for Genesis. Oh, yeah. And since our last episode, we have another gaggle of releases that have made their way to the Foundry, um, starting with A Wintry Death by Jason mm. Duff. Mm. Our stores were empty and game was scarce. We pushed out further and further to find anything to fill our bellies. My family was starving. I knew it would not be long before the end. I hope I am not too late. <laughs> I love his blurbs. Uh, <laughs> a Wintry Death is a compilation of five encounter scenarios for Genesis, very similar to what uh, Jason's released in the past. Um, mm set in a, a terrible fantasy winter uh, that should take groups uh, two to four hours to complete each. These are excellent scenarios to include between the main parts of your adventure, and it is suggested that you also have Slaves to Fate, uh, one of Jason's prior adventures, um, to fully explore a wintry death. Um, obviously, this is compatible and, and really designed for Realms of Terranoth, but can work in any fantasy campaign. 
Um, and Jason has really been hitting some home runs with his modular adventures, man. Slaves to Fate, uh, The Brand, Fat of the Lamb. Um, mm. I can't wait to dive into this one. Uh, it's only three ninety nine. Very cool. And that's something that's kind of missing, I think, is the adventures. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. That um, We're not seeing many of them. And, and Jason has obviously found his niche there. So uh, keep on going, Jason. They are great. So the next title is Powers of the Mind by Jared Matthew. Now, after diving into his incredible salvage setting right here on the show, uh, Jared teased and has now delivered Powers of the Mind, uh, which features and focuses on the new rules for psychic powers that were created for his original post-apocalyptic setting, Salvage, but without all the rust and scrap metal. (laughs) the, the book offers new rules for six psychic powers, including astral projection, empathy, precognition, reiki. I think that's how you pronounce it. Reiki. Reiki. Okay. Um, telekinesis and telepathy. Uh, it also includes the psychic-related talents created for salvage as well and the entirely new mechanics of madness uh, from using psychic powers too flippantly. Uh, the rules presented here are identical to those in Salvage, so if you already own it, don't go through the process of double purchasing it. But if you don't have Salvage and are interested in these rules, I would highly recommend them. They are very nicely done. Uh, then this product is for you, and it's only two dollars fifty. And the the cover sells it for me. I think <laughs> it's a great um, cover. Yeah, it's a great cover. And he got the guy who did the uh, the cover for his first. Uh, for for salvage to do this one and uh, it delivers as well so uh, so well done with that presentation a plus uh, but um, yeah go and take a look at the rules as well they are fantastic they're very good and by the way Huli, reiki or, or rock reiki as it's sometimes called is is uh, psychic healing ah right which is a real discipline and you can actually go to reiki clinics and stuff and Wow. If you I did not know that. Believe that that's a thing. So, anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no offense to anyone if you do. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the next title um, uh, that was released since our last show, uh, I love this, Hero Time, number two, The Siege of Windhall from Neil Cobb. Um, this, this quest book, which is the second in the Hero Time setting, uh, is part adventure module, part setting book, um, which is kind of how Neil does it. This time, you're saving the town of Windhall from destruction at the hands of a legion of orcs. Um, the supplement includes a 16-page quest book, um, illustrated in Hero Time's fun and unique, I would say, hand-drawn style. Um, a highly detailed map of Windhall, uh, new rules for siege engines, and for hiring mercenaries. Um, Hero Time, for those of you who are not familiar, is, is pretty fun. It's, it's a very, very tongue-in-cheek, high-fantasy setting that was apparently several years in the making. I'd love to get Neil on the show to talk about it. Um, a highly developed world, very epic stories, very legendary heroes. So it's really great to see another offering in this very interesting setting. Um, and it's only four bucks. So yeah. worth a check out, definitely. Very cool. That uh, The next on the list is Terranoth Talents by Chris Markham. Uh, the Machine has given us four new entries in so many weeks and is back again with another Terranoth supplement. Terranoth Talents expands on the 36 career options offered in the previously released Trades of Terranoth by offering a talent pyramid for each of the 36 careers, as well as nearly 200 new talents. 
And no, that's not a typo. That is insane. And yes, I've already spoken to him about that. Um, (laughs) These suggested talent pyramids are suggestions that can help provide a roadmap for typical progression in those chosen careers. Uh, You know, working well within a given career's theme and, and role in the game and in the world of Manara specifically. So if you play in uh, Realms of Taranoth, um, this is a product for you. Uh, it is $5.99. A lot of these uh, these talents have gone through, and I have spoken to Chris about this, and they have gone through a testing process. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's been through a testing process that FFG would do uh, because that takes several months. Um, but, um, you know, it has been past the eyes of, of a number of developers uh, that uh, have been involved in the foundry. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's some really, really interesting stuff in there. Interesting. <clears throat> you know, 200 talents, man. It would take me years to play test that, but... Ooh. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. <laughs> but, anyway, that's that's only the first of, like, four things Markham released since our last episode, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll come to the rest. But, honestly, what I want to come to next is probably one of the things I'm most excited about having come out in the last couple weeks. Um mm-hmm. And I, I am absolutely thrilled to start using this in my games. From Roy Altman, a.k.a. RPG Narco, the mm. Genesis Expanded Critical Tables. Um, oh. <laughs> Roy always gives us some very interesting content, and he is back mm. with something incredibly useful with Genesis Expanded Crit Tables, a product for those ultimately bored with the original table 1.6-10 critical injury, injury results from the Genesis Core rulebook who are looking for narrative inspiration during combat. This supplement includes 145 new critical injury descriptions separated into six brand new critical tables, a different table for each kind, different, different macro categories of attack types or weapons, um, mm. specifically crush, uh, for obviously those bludgeoning weapons, puncture, slash, cold, electricity, and heat, so those magic mm-hmm. users are not left out. Mm-hmm. Compatible with all settings and genres, um, these new critical injury tables can be easily integrated into any Genesis game. No rules changes are needed whatsoever. You simply roll on one of these tables in the supplement, corresponding with the type of attack or weapon that was used to make the crit. But furthermore, <laughs> it is gorgeously and professionally laid out by my friend and our very own co-host on the podcast, GM Hooley. Yes. (laughs) Very good, Hooley. And I don't know how you managed to do this, but you did it uh, because the the new crit tables are presented in two formats. You actually have a small font format where all six new tables fit on one double-sided sheet of paper. And then there's a a large font for people my age uh where where all six tables are spread across six pages <laughs> um but yeah it's beautiful man you did a fantastic job on this and roy did a fantastic job on the content what what a useful supplement it is it is really really good and i thoroughly enjoyed in uh being involved in, in that little project and it didn't take all that long to to put together which was and the reason is is because roy had already done a large portion of it anyway um, but uh, Roy is obviously a little bit younger than me, and the first thing that I said, surprisingly enough, was exactly what you said. Why is it that everything's so small? I need like 
glasses to actually see it or have it right up to my face. Um, that it was a little bit too small, and and even for people who are visually impaired as well, uh, I think that's important to take into consideration when you're doing product. Is thinking about um, people who are visually impaired um, or the elderly, in my case. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's the reason why that they um, got expanded over to uh, to two products. But um, uh, Roy had uh, a lot of good stuff in there already. Uh, just had some cleaning up of some of the formats and a little bit of guidance with when it comes to uh, some of the other little tips and tricks that you can do in InDesign. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the final product was absolutely fantastic. So thank you very much, Roy, for the opportunity of, uh, of helping you out there. Um, it was a load of fun to do, and I got to learn a, a few little things as well. So uh, Roy taught me a few things, which was great. Um, and it's only three nine nine, nine so, yeah, you've got to go out and buy it. It's really nice. And great, a lot of work. Great, great, great resource. <laughs> yeah, great resource. All right, our next product uh, is Terranoth Treasures Volume 3, another one by Chris Markham. Uh, In his second release since our last episode, The Machine Markham returns with the third volume in the Terranoth Treasures series, which provides 15 additional Terranoth magic items, specifically 15 new rune-bound shards. Uh, Each is derived from the previous lore in the Terranoth settings, such as rune-bound and descent, and even a rune from the legacy of Dragonhold. Um, but uh, now with new art and rules adapted for Genesis. And it's only $2, worth your while for sure. Absolutely. And for his third release since our last show, Chris Markham uh, keeps the equipment train rolling with Griselda's Gear, which offers, God, speaking of 200 pieces of content, Over 200 (laughs) different pieces of equipment for adventurers, including those giving minor bonuses to various skill checks. Sneaky stuff, instruments for bards, religious trappings for priests, and varieties of food and drink are just some of the categories of gear listed inside the supplement. But it's not just a list of tables, folks. Each entry is fully described, and many are also pictured. Um, also, some new exotic weapons uh, from the far eastern empire of Shenzhou, uh, the katana, nunchaku, and other such weapons with Genesis stats, pretty cool, um, are detailed. Mm-hmm. Additionally, all the gear is fully organized in tables um, at the end of the supplement. Uh, for the price, this is a major benefit to any Terranoth game, or just any fantasy game for that matter, um, when you mm-hmm. consider that it's only $3. Yeah, absolutely. His work just... It gets better and better with with, uh, with each release. You're going to love it. Um, but my favorite by far of his releases is the next one, which is Sands of the Past. Uh, and uh, it's his fourth release this show. And Markham gives us, it gives us basically his all uh, with Sands of the Past. Uh, this product is a Genesis translation of information in the community-created Descent Supplement. Sands of the Past is set in Al-Kalim, my favorite area. Uh, This supplement includes two new careers, the Psychic and the Hierophant, which are presented in the same format as they are in Trades of Terranoth and Terranoth Talents. As such, they include talent pyramids and a few new talents, as well as a special ability. The Hierophant includes a new familiar, the Bandaged Servant, and there is a new magic item um, which is detailed, and it's called the Mind's Eye Turban, 
which is incredibly useful to any character with the psychic skill described in Scott Sumwalt's Zinthrix's Guide to Magic and Timuran's Tome. I had no problem with Zinthrix's, but I had a problem with Timuran's. Go figure. But anyway, um, two additional creatures are also included with full descriptions and illustrations. Uh, the Burrowing Horror and the Sarcophagus Guards. Um, and the prices pay what you want. It's got a suggested price of 50 cents, uh, but it is pay what you want uh, because it is, you know, part community content. So uh, that's definitely worth uh, downloading and checking out and using in your game. Now, one thing that I do want to mention very quickly, because I had, when going through this, I'm going, he keeps referring to familiars, and I was a little bit confused. It would appear that in some of the other Runebound games, they're referred to any monsters are referred to as familiars, and yeah. I don't know why, yeah. but that's the that's the case that sort of threw me, and I'm going, so you can have this as a familiar, I don't understand, but that's the reason why, so... For those who were, were afraid to ask, I asked for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so that explains that. And that brings us to uh, the, the last title to review, which I'm actually very excited about, The Gun Locker, a Genesis Android Shadow of the Beanstalk firearms catalog from first-timer mm. Lee Ironside. Um, mm. The, the Gun Locker is a selection of firearms for use with Android Shadow of the Beanstalk. Um, it includes the stats and full descriptions for over 60 firearms from slug throwers to energy weapons and everything in between. Um, Lee says he wanted to give both players and game masters looking for a more extensive choice of weaponry uh, for their characters a solid tool. And I think he did. I'm very interested to check this one out. Um, it mm. is $4.99. Hmm. Seen a little bit of talk online about this particular supplement, um, and um, yeah, do take a look at it if you. Uh, it looks beautifully done, um, but uh, yeah, uh, it, on a couple of items, he's taken the approach of well, it has two different names, and yes, it has the same stats uh, as opposed to Star Wars, which um, sort of said these are the stats of a blaster rifle, for example, and these are all the models. Choose a model and do it narratively that way. Uh, so, and then they obviously expanded on that later on down the track. But anyway, something to consider there. But um, so anyway, that's uh, that's my feedback on it. So you can find these and many more fantastic Genesis Foundry content over at drive3rpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. Mm-hmm. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of The Forge by joining our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, as Huli intimated before, you can access our dedicated Discord server where you can inf- interact with our fellow Genesmiths, while higher tiers provide priority for your game and rules questions, special in-show recognitions, and even a special monthly get-together with either Huli or myself to discuss your Foundry product, campaign, games, or anything else that you want. Hmm. But no matter what, anything you can spare to show your support is appreciated. And each of your donations help the podcast directly so we can continue to provide you with the excellent regular Genesis content that we do. And remember, it is our patrons who get to vote in the Forge Awards. As you mentioned before. As I mentioned before. <laughs> That's important, Gamer Nation. We really want to make this a thing. So join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com slash Forge Genesis. Okay, Huli, are you ready to dive into a serious return to our die casting segment? 
I am, and I'm actually really looking forward to our discussion tonight because there's so much potential with this. Uh, but uh, listen, without further ado, let's get into some die casting. Die casting. The Forge Podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. Our diecasting segment is about closely examining individual skills and individual talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Now, in our last diecasting segment, we got all sneaky by surreptitiously <laughs> worming our way into the stealth skill with some right. unnoticed uses, some new talents, and some secretive examination. But tonight... We are focusing on an entirely different skill that promises to leave our potion bottles filled and our work tables covered in stains and burns. By listener request, we are stirring the cauldron of alchemy. Indeed we are. Now, this is a, a new skill which is introduced in Genesis, compared with Star Wars, that is a classic skill for veterans of fantasy but also of steampunk and weird science settings. But truthfully, there's often some confusion around this skill. What exactly does it do? What is it used for? And how to use it properly and perhaps improperly? The alchemy skill is introduced somewhat in the core rulebook uh, and that it's detailed to a much stronger degree in realms of Terranoth. But that's about all we have on it. Now, we're going to dig into these sources and share what's in there in terms of, you know, what's raw, but we're, we're also going to do our best to expand the skill for creative non-raw usage so that you can utilize the alchemy skill best in your own games or in your upcoming foundry product. So let's talk about basics, Huli. What is the alchemy skill? So the alchemy skill is a general skill, which is found on page 57 of the core rulebook and is honestly a fairly underused skill. Uh, the bottom line is that alchemy is a strange category of being both a this knowledge skill, but it's also a crafting skill. Uh, so it, it's used to identify potions and elixirs, but it's also to actually create or brew them. And, and honestly, it's this lack of an alchemical uh, potions and elixirs outside of Terranos that I think has kept this skill from being used more. And I think it's worth noting that we really can't talk about alchemy, I mean, to your point, without talking hmm. about crafting, which we yeah. will, um, at, at least in terms of crafting alchemical items. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... In the, the core rulebook, um, as I said before on page 57, uh, alchemy, which is an intellect skill, it's defined as alchemy encompasses the knowledge and techniques to brew potions and elixirs. Although alchemy isn't considered a magic skill, the effects of your concoctions may approximate or even truly be magical, depending on the campaign setting. The limits of alchemical creations are up to your GM, who will assign difficulties to alchemy checks appropriate to the potency of the brew. And that is where our problems start. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get there. We'll get there. We will. We will. Uh, so, um, uh, how it should be used, um, is in fantasy, steampunk, 
and weird war settings. That's what they recommended and we would agree. So if you're in those sorts of environments and your setting is that, alchemy is something that should likely go into your setting as well. Hmm. Also, it's noted that it's also a part of the monster world setting for those who have the expanded player's guide. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Uh, So, you know, simply put, alchemy is the skill you use to do anything with potions and elixirs or other wondrous alchemical concoctions uh, where amazing effects are are achieved sans the use of actual magic. (laughs) And that's an important distinction that we will actually dissect in the shortly. Um, But, you know, in terms of the raw, the rules as written, the core rulebook does give us some really good solid examples of when to use alchemy. Um, Four solid examples. Uh, The first being your character tries to identify a potion by taste. Okay. (laughs) Classic use of alchemy, right? You know, you find a potion. What is it? Well, let me smell it. Stick a pinky in. And, ah, well, this is speed potion, right? (laughs) It's called meth, Murray. <laughs> Only you call it a speed potion. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, the next thing the book um, uh, gives you an example of is is when you want to name the ingredients that are needed uh, for a certain elixir. Um, so if you need to brew something and you you want to know what ingredients go into it, maybe because you need to find those ingredients, um, you can make an alchemy skill to determine what those ingredients are, or remember what they are, or research what they are. Then, of course, uh, the, the latter half of that coin is actually creating something, and that's using alchemy to actually to attempt to prepare a potion or an elixir or poultice or tonic or similar compound with wondrous or magical effects. Um, and the last example they give is when your character, this really falls into the same one above, your character attempts to prepare a remedy for a disease or an illness. So if you're going to create a tincture that will combat disease, you know, that is definitely in the purview of alchemy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are literally hundreds of, hundreds of ways uh, that you can use the, the alchemy skill, but the basic premise is going to be the same. You either you're making it, you're preparing to make it, or identifying an alchemical item. And now what this means is that the, the alchemy skill needs to work in conjunction with the crafting rules in your setting. But as Chris alluded to before, we're going to get to that. <laughs> now, there's also ways, Hooli, that alchemy shouldn't be used. Mm. Um, and and I, I think the core rules do provide us with some pretty good examples there. Mm, they do. Um, the, your character basically attempts to enchant an otherwise mundane liquid. Now, this is really interesting. What the hell did I actually mean? Um, uh, the bottom line here is that enchanting something on the fly, uh, which is, you know, like a mundane liquid in lieu of brewing a liquid in your lab is a domain of magic, not of alchemy, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite interesting. So, uh, the next one is that your, your character desires to heal someone directly through medical treatment or their wounds um, of their wounds, sorry, or or laying on hands. Again, this is either a magical skill or medicine. You want me to to create a potion of healing ahead of time is different. It is clearly alchemy, but that's going to be crafting an item, not using uh, alchemy in the moment to perform healing. Right. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, interesting with that. I will go back to one point very quickly when it comes to the first one, where we talk about character attempts to enchant an otherwise mundane liquid. And we'll talk about this later on, but for those people who who have played Pathfinder, and I know that one of the uh, one of my favourite classes was the Alchemist, that they do a lot of that on the fly. We will touch base on that, just in case that sort of you're going, oh, they're not going to cover that. We, I'm a massive fan, and I just want you all know to know that we are going to cover that. So we will come back to it. The last one is that your character seeks to transmute lead into gold. <laughs> as much as I would love that to happen, um, that would be obviously magic. It's uh, it it also provides a good limitation as to what is too much for alchemy. It's hilarious that it's hilarious that they put that distinction in there because when when you know, people think about alchemy, they think about you know in 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 Western society, you know that that's the classical use of alchemy is to turn lead into gold. You know, um, no, no. <laughs> I don't I don't know why my fantasy alchemist has the voice of a 1920s radio announcer, but there it is. Um, <laughs> Join alchemy now! Turn lead into gold. Hey! <laughs> But you've got to do the manical laugh at the end, though. <laughs> Join the Junior Alchemist Association. Turn lead into gold for your spare time. Ha 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 ha! That's it, yeah. There you go. That's it. Okay. Look, going through these what to use it for and what not to use it for. Guys, what you should take away from these in-book examples is very simple. There are major distinctions between magic and alchemy. Mm. Alchemy cannot do all that magic can do. Frankly, magic is much, much more powerful in terms of effect. Okay. And you have to keep that in mind. If you're sticking to the raw, if you're sticking to rules as written, if you want to be an alchemist, that's great, but you should not expect to have the same oomph that a mage can bring to the table. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, the trade off for that is that alchemy can be performed by those without any access to magic. Per the core rules, remember, you cannot even attempt a magic skill check without at least one rank in that skill. Alchemy is a general skill, and it does not have that restriction. A non-mage can use it. Frankly, a novice without any training can attempt alchemy. Mm-hmm. And the last thing to really take away from these in-book examples is that another key differentiator for alchemy, alchemy is usually about preparation. Outside of knowledge uses like research or identification, if you're sticking to the raw, Alchemy is a crafting skill. And the same way that I can't craft a sword or a Tesla gun in the middle of an encounter without some talents, okay, um, I, I can't do it for alchemical items either, um, just in terms of your everyday rules as written usage. So those are the big things to take away. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's get on to the topic that I really, really want to talk about. <laughs> um, and that's crafting. So the core rulebook only mentions the crafting use of alchemy in one small place. And that's a sidebar on page 57, which talks about the difficulties of brewing a potion. Um, And it says, as a guideline for GMs, the difficulty of preparing a potion should generally correspond to its rarity, generally by dividing the rarity by two and rounding up. The resulting number should be the difficulty of the check to brew the potion. For instance, if your character wants to make a healing potion, i.e. painkillers, page 94, 
of rarity two, the base difficulty for the check is easy. So one purple die. If your character doesn't have the proper equipment or ingredients, the difficulty may be higher. And that's it. But thankfully, we have Realms of Terranoth, <laughs> with an entire chapter devoted to crafting and a very specific rules for alchemical crafting, which can be used in any fantasy, steampunk, weird war, or monster world setting. Now, these rules start on page 113 of the Realms of Terranoth and are blessedly simple. They are used to craft alchemical items of all kinds, which for simplicity's sake, we'll just refer to as potions because they also refer to elixirs and pastes and whatever else. So we're just going to call them potions because it's easy. Um, The important thing to note um, is in a setting with alchemy that has that in use, this also does include poisons which is an important note. Mm. So, Chris, what is the the process that they mention in the book on on how to do this? Okay, you got four steps. And and we've kind of compiled the information. We'll explain it as simply as we we can. (laughs) Step one, figure out what you want to make. What's the potion you're going to brew? Okay. Mm. Um, You know, either find it in the existing books. We have 12 published that we're actually going to walk through. Um, or, you know, figure out what, you know, to create your own potion, basically, with, with the effects that you want to have that doesn't exist in the books. Um, in which case, it, it is on the GM to set the rarity and the actual base effect. And that is where a lot of confusion lies. We will be talking about that heavily in short order. Mm-hmm. Step two, once you know what you got or what you want to make is to get the ingredients that you need to brew the potion, whether you purchase them or you gather them. Now, for, for purchasing, it's easy. Uh, the cost for purchasing the the ingredients for a potion should typically be about half the cost of the actual produced item if you were just going to be able to purchase the potion directly from a vendor. Okay. Now, for gathering ingredients, which the rules do talk about, you obviously, for you know, for things that aren't insane... Um, or, or really unique, you can go in the wild and gather, you know, the the wild things that you would use for alchemy, the various ingredients, meaning that you or an ally could travel to the right location and, and spend some time, typically the better part of a day, finding what is needed um, using a survival check with a difficulty equal to half the rarity of the potion uh, rounded up. Um, which is which is fantastic, um, but the rules are specific to call out as I alluded to before for for rare or singular ingredients. They may not be available for purchase or locatable with a simple survival check. They may require a special quest to obtain them, which could even become an entire adventure or session in its own right. Mm. Now, the step three is make your alchemy check to brew the potion. The difficulty is usually going to be half the rarity of the item rounded up. Now, this usually takes one hour plus a number of hours equal to the rarity of the potion, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, very simple, uh, which uh, it's, it's a great mechanic. Uh, I absolutely love it. Now, if successful, you've created enough of the potion or the item for one dose or one use. So that's really important to remember. It's only one dose. How do you make more in the one sitting? Well, this is where we get up to step four. Now, step four is to spend advantage, triumph, and despair results of your alchemy check on the effects of the potion. 
And this is the most fun part. Uh, in Table 2-17 on page 114 of Realms of Terranoth, it details the common and uh, makes some suggestions of options for spending the narrative dice results. Now, we're not going to go into all of them uh, on the show, mainly because we know you can all read. Uh, but they get pretty crazy, and it's a lot of fun. So on the positive side, uh, and with advantage and triumph, you can have the user gain uh, a boost die or heal strain or wounds, uh, increase the duration of the effect, save the ingredients after use, or even brew multiple batches of the potion for uh, from the one check. Uh, on the negative side, with threatened despair, you can have the user suffer strain or wounds, have a delayed effect time, uh, require more ingredients, uh, force a negative status on the user, uh, like immobilized or, or, or staggered, um, or even have the effect completely rejected um, by the, the body of the person who is taking the, the potion. One fun one that I've done is that they've brewed the wrong potion. <laughs> Which can be hilarious, especially if it's um, they thought that they were creating something like a uh, potion of, of brawn and they gave it to the fighter. Um, instead, it was intellect. But anyway, moving along. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's, that is our four-step process. And it's really that simple. It really is. Yeah. Well, the next question, honestly, is with this process in place, what can you craft? <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is this is the heart of this discussion. I think, Huli, this is the this is what really I think stymies most players and GMs when it comes to alchemy. What what kinds of effects can you achieve? How how difficult is the check? What do the ingredients cost? You know, if it's something I'm, I'm developing myself, it's not in the book. Mm. Now, there there are some initial rules to think about for this yes look there are and you've got to keep in mind that the difficulty of your potion is always the potion's rarity divided by two and then round up um this works exactly the same if you've ever paid a little bit of attention it basically works out exactly the same way is that you if you're looking to purchase an item if you notice the table actually says you know, uh, rarity one to two is um, a simple check or, or whatever it is. It's virtually the same um, that uh, you just find out what the rarity of the item is, divided by two, and round up. Simple. Very, very easy. Um, so the rarity is what really, really matters in terms of determining your difficulty. If you're crafting a potion that already exists in the book, you're absolutely set. You don't need to do much. But if you're creating something brand new out of whole cloth, the question you have to answer for that potions are, what is the effect and how long does it last? What does it cost? And what is the rarity? Mm -hmm. Now, guys, we're going to start by stepping a bit ahead and actually looking at the potions and elixirs that are currently available on the published material. First yeah. of all, this is going to give us a barometer of the level of effect that is actually normally associated with rarity and cost, okay? Mm -hmm. Which the GM and the alchemist need to have a real understanding of when they start coming up with, with potions of their own. Mm -hmm. The only existing published alchemical items, there are 12 of them, 
all exist in Realms of Terranoth, pages 102 to 104. We are going to take some time to talk about each of them and learn what we can from them. Furthermore, as we go through these, we are not going to go alphabetically as they are in the book. Instead, we are going to go by lowest to highest rarity and thus alchemy check brewing difficulty. So in order to to help illustrate the level of effect that's associated with that. So... Mm. We're going to talk about, we're, we're going to go through these. We're going to give you the potion. We're going to talk about what effect it has. We're going to talk about what its duration is. And then we're going to tell you the rarity and the price. So you guys will be able to see as we go through these, the escalating level and when you start to see jumps happen. Mm. Um, mm. So let's go through these, Huli. What do we, what do we got, man? What's our, what's our first potion in the published material? The first potion that we have is the Health Elixir. So it functions basically like a painkiller, and it's on page 116 of the core rulebook, and its duration is instant, its rarity is three, and its price is 25 currency. Bam. So the difficulty to brew it is going to be its rarity, which is three, divide that by two, one and a half, round up two so that's going to be two difficulty dice or a pretty average check very very simple to do yeah um and 25 so this is how this is how you brew painkillers straight up this is how you can craft them absolutely um next up we have the stamina elixir which is it's a painkiller for strain that's what it is Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you drink it, you immediately recover five strain. Each subsequent draft used in the same day heals one less strain, just like painkillers do for wounds. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Instant duration. And again, rarity of three. So two purple difficulty to craft it, but double the price at 50, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense. All right. Stamina mm-hmm. is, is always more costly in terms of XP or anything else in the game to increase or improve. Because there's so yep. many ways to heal stamina in the game. Mm, absolutely. Um, and it is really the resource that everybody has to monitor as well. Um, because it's what everything functions from, really. Special abilities and spells in particular. Um, we then have Immunity Elixir. Now, using it immediately nullifies any mundane po- poisons or toxins currently affecting the character. And for the rest of the encounter or scene, any resilience checks the character makes to resist poisons and toxins are going to be upgraded twice. Mm-hmm. So it has, an, it has an instant effect plus a encounter duration effect. That's right. Mm. And it has a rarity of four, uh, which is still going to be the same difficulty, uh, but its price is 100 currency. So, uh, so yeah, you can see a, a bit of a jump there, but it's only been one rarity. Okay. Interesting. Okay, next up, we have an oddball one. This is the Regeneration Elixir, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's basically a healing, it's a heal spell in a bottle when you get down to it, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you take the Elixir, and you make a simple, that's zero purple dice, resilience check mm-hmm. um, when you drink the Elixir. Then mm-hmm. uh, you will heal one wound for each success you roll and one strain for each advantage you roll. And a triumph, it actually calls out, you can spend a triumph to repeat the check again at the start of the character's next turn, which I think is really cool. Mm. Um, so obviously it has an instant effect. Um, rarity of four, price of 50. 
this is a a really interesting thing. Um, you know, unlike a a mage casting heal, most characters don't jack up their resilience. <laughs> um, so what, what's what's intriguing about this one to me? I, I don't think it's miscosted. I think its price is right on, considering the fact that it is possible for me to roll all blanks on those dice and literally drink this potion and have no effect happen. <laughs> um, so it, it's a bit of a gamble, okay? But I, obviously, that's a, that's a very unlikely scenario. But it is possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next one that we have is a smoke bomb vial. So, as a maneuver, a character can throw a smoke bomb vial at a point within short range. Upon impact, the vial shatters to create a thick smoke screen large enough to conceal the single character and other characters engaged with the target. The smoke screen provides concealment worth two dice. Um, and the duration is variable. Um, and the rarity is four, and it costs 25 currency. Now, this is your typical ninja move, um, or what Batman does in um, the original Batman, for those who are old enough to remember it. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, I throw down the... the uh, the vial and all this mist up comes up and then you disappear into it. Uh, that's the, I mean, because as we mentioned in our previous episode with stealth, uh, you can, if you start in stealth, you may have some abilities that allow you to move from stealth area to or concealed area to another concealed area and you've disappeared from sight. So, yeah. um, so. And the variable duration really has to do with, the environment more than anything else it's up to the gm how long the smoke sticks around you know is there is there Mm. high wind in the area what's the ventilation like you know um but that's actually not a part of the actual item so i think that's worth noting Mm. Mm. um okay up next is one of my favorites from a fluff standpoint and that is and and now we're getting out of the rarity force we're getting into rarity fives so at this point we're looking at at three purple difficulty to craft this okay Mm -hmm. um bottled courage (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which the fluff text in Teradoth basically says, it's just booze. It's just really good quality booze, right? Um, uh, you know, but the, the imbiber upgrades any discipline checks they make to resist fear or coercion, um, which is awesome. Um, it has a full encounter or scene duration, rarity five, only 25 uh, currency for the price. Um, quite frankly, I think this is a little overcosted in terms of rarity right um mm. but we'll get onto that with our lessons learned i i think yeah. i think you could probably bring this down to a rarity four and be fine because it only affects one skill check and even then only under very very specific circumstances yeah yeah i would even go so far as to say it's a three but um yeah you know yeah. there isn't any real difference between um three and three, four, four anyway. no no um, so unless you start getting into abilities that, or talent specifically, that allow you to, uh, to drop that rarity, um, and then it becomes a little bit easier to do. Um, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, uh, our next one that we have, which is quite interesting, um, to throw into the mix is poison. 
So as a manoeuvre, poison can be applied to a weapon with a point or edge, or even to other items like smoke bombs, per the GM's discretion. Um, If applied to a weapon, the first successful hit that deals at least one wound causes the target to suffer the poison's effect, and once it's affected one target, it's depleted, and a new dose must be reapplied. Targets affected by poison must make a hard resilience check as an out-of-turn incidental or suffer four wounds, not reduced by soak, plus one strain per threat. The GM can also spend a despair to inflict a crit or to force the target to repeat the check at the start of their next turn. That's nasty. <laughs> uh, it's uh, variable, but it is also instant when it is used. Uh, so uh, variable meaning that it is applied and then it, it doesn't actually sort of come into effect until such time as it actually is used. Right. Uh, the rarity of this is five, and the price is the most expensive thus far that we've talked about, which is 200 currency. Yeah, and and that's, I, I think it's well costed from a price from a currency standpoint, um, mm-hmm. and I've heard arguments that people say the rarity is actually too small for it. But I don't know. I think I think three purple dice is about right to create poison, don't you? Look, I, I'm sort of on the fence about that. I think that. Uh, when it comes to to poison, I think that it should be harder to find. But I think that if you're that sort of uh, character that has a bit of a shady background. In other words, that they may have talents that uh, allow for um, dealing with streetwise and stuff like that, that um, that maybe you – because you'd really be using streetwise anyway because poison, no matter what the setting, if you wanted to go out and buy it, for example, and I know that we're talking about making it, but if you wanted to go out and buy it, You'd be probably using streetwise anyway, as opposed to um, nego- not negotiation. What is it? Um, negotiation. Yes, it is negotiation. Yeah. Uh, to uh, to be able to find it in the first place. So I I think that it should be higher because poison is is fairly. It, it's not readily found, um, but uh, I know that eh. they're. Um, I don't know. I'm on the fence. <laughs> you, 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 you and I, you and I can disagree on that point. My, my problem is you're looking at this strictly from a go and find it, buy it perspective from rarity. I'm looking at it from look. Rarity determines the crafting difficulty, and if you make this higher, I mean, you could you could move it to six, and that wouldn't affect the crafting difficulty. I'd be down with that. But higher. I mean, seriously, you think it should be four purple dice to craft poison? That's too no, much. I don't, but I think that poison requires a certain level of um, uh, there needs to be a little bit more skill involved in being able to do it. And yes, if it was um, three purple, you're still going to need at least. Uh, I was going to say, <laughs> well, you think you think you need more skill than what can handle three purple dice? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just know um, my players. Anyway, um, they have their good days and bad days. And respect, uh, man. I can walk down to the Mega Mart and buy poison right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes, you can. I can. I can. I can buy rat poison at the corner store right now. And trust me, it is quite detrimental if it is put into your bloodstream. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is true. That is true. That is very, very true. 
<laughs> yeah, look, um, as I said, I mean, it, it dep- I guess it depends on the poison. And, I mean, this is where, and I'm sure that somebody's got it in the, in the planning somewhere, is a bit of a poison guide or, or something like that. Because there, there is only this one. Yeah, yeah. There is only this one version of poison. I think that there should be multiple poisons that do all sorts of things, um, like that. Um, you know, suddenly you, you're getting a different condition, uh, whether it be that uh, you know, similar to ensnared, that uh, you know, you become um, immobilized, um, or you know, like a paralysis potion or, or something like that, paralysis mm-hmm. poison. You know, there should be a multiple, but I mean, this is all that we've got. If, if, look, if, 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 if somebody said, if somebody said, I want to craft a poison that staggers my target or immobilizes them, right? Hmm. Oh, oh, yep. heck yeah, man. We're talking about rarity seven, eight. Okay. Absol- yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hands down. But I'm sorry, four wounds and some soak or four, four <laughs> wounds and some strain. I'm sorry. That shouldn't be more than three purple for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But- we might have to agree to disagree then. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, what I don't think we'll disagree on is our next one, though, uh, which actually moves us finally into the Rarity 6 territory, and that is the yep. Acid Flask. So mm. the Acid Flask can be thrown up to short range and affects one character and anyone who is engaged with them. Um, and what it does is, is for in, in that small area, it creates a corrosive atmosphere with a rating of 4, which is... <laughs> really, really nasty. You can uh, you can check out the core rulebook on that. Uh, I think it's page one eleven, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, basically, when you're in that area, it just inflicts four wounds. Okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, really, really nasty. Um, it has a, a, a an encounter duration. Um, mm-hmm. Rarity six, cost of two hundred. I think I think the rarity and the cost are well done for that one. Mm-hmm. I would have gone a little bit higher for that in comparison to the other stuff because it is only just that uh, that one rarity higher. Um, and, um, you know, it's still three. So, yeah. I don't three know. is hard, Maybe. man. It's it's literally hard. That's the definition of the, of the, yeah, of the three dice. It's hard. But, dude, we're talking about even then, it's only four wounds. And the other thing, too, right. is it's not like it's I – can, I, I, I can avoid it by walking away. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get back to that with some of our learned lessons from this as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our next one is Power Potion, which is oh, <laughs> it's a terrible name for a, a potion. But anyway, it's called the Power Potion. And the user increases their brawn by, oh, that's right, that's what I was talking about before, uh, their brawn by one. If you're already at brawn five, then you instead add two boost die to all checks using brawn. However, when the potion wears off, you suffer six strain. <laughs> so there is a downside. Uh, it, uh, the duration is encounter duration. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to last for a, that three to four rounds that we keep talking about. Uh, and its rarity is six and it's 250 currency. So, yeah, I think that that's pretty decently priced. Um, I agree. It's in that same sort of category as um, uh, when we talk about spells that are used uh, to um, to increase uh, a stat by by one or or give it a, a green die. Uh, so yeah, well, I don't have a problem with that at all. No, no, it's 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 a classic, and and just you know, it's I, I agree with you, but the, the the name is just hilarious to me, you know. 
Again, my my 1920s radio alchemist, right? You know, get a can of power potion today. Increase your brawn by one. You know, um, <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, uh, but my, my my radio alchemist would also be selling our next one as well, uh, which is which is the protective tonic. Get get a flask of protective tonic today. Um, uh, protective tonic, very simple. When you imbibe it, you gain plus one soak. All right, which right. is nice. Um, mm. The duration on this, though, as we start getting into these higher rarities, it, it is a rarity of six, um, mm-hmm. like Power Potion. But unlike Power Potion, it only has a duration of the next three turns. Okay. Mm. Um, and it costs 125, um, mm. which I think is well costed considering its limited duration effect. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really only one point. Now, if you're getting smashed by about 50 goblins, Maybe plus one soak. Hey, man. I, I know players that'll fight you over one soak. <laughs> I do too. But anyway, the next one, which I find is really interesting, is the speed potion. Uh, now, the imbiber gains one additional maneuver during their turn. This means that you can perform three maneuvers on a turn instead of the limit of two. However, when the potion wears off, you suffer six strain, um, which I think is a really cool payoff. Uh, it lasts for three turns. It has a rarity of seven, as it should for something that breaks yeah. the rules this yeah. badly. Four, four purple, four purple difficulty to brew that, man. Absolutely, and it's two hundred uh, currency. So uh, yeah, this this to me is is nicely balanced from both ends, uh, as uh, as well as having that high rarity. To so you're not going to have this all the time. This is going to be something that the character is going to spend some time preparing to to brew. Well, keep in mind with the time constraints too. It's going to take at least well, typically eight hours just to brew this one potion. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because absolutely. you know, s- seven hours for the rarity and then one hour base. Um, mm. You know, assuming you don't, you know, roll good advantage, <laughs> uh, you know, or or, or threat. Um, but yeah, and this leads us to the last published potion, which is the big daddy and kind of a classic fantasy staple, and that is the invisibility potion. Mm. You drink it, and the user becomes completely invisible. You, you, you and your gear, you can't be seen, you cast no reflection, no shadow, but you can, of course, be smelled, heard, etc. You're, you're invisible. And ultimately, mechanically, what that means is that you gain concealment of plus four dice on checks. Mm-hmm. That's insane. If you go into the core rulebook and look at the plus dice table for concealment, they, they actually stop at plus three. Okay, <laughs> which is which is like, you know, London pea soup fog. Okay, so this yeah. gives you plus four dice for concealment. Um, and of course it is worth noting. You can also still potentially be detected by magical means. Um, yeah. This just, you know, makes you invisible to mundane sight. Um, it only lasts for three rounds, has a rarity of nine, 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 <laughs> which divide by half round up. That is a five purple dice crafting. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And costs a thousand currency to purchase, so five hundred if you want to gather the materials for it. Um, mm-hmm. So th- that's that's the upper level of this barometer, guys. That's the that that's an incredible effect 
but has a limited duration, incredible rarity, and incredible cost. And that's really what you're looking for here. Mm. But Huli, this kind of brings us down into what we learned from really analyzing these published potions. Um, mm. Because really, there's five lessons that that we have gleaned from examining these potions in terms of, of what that means to brew up our own effects, our own rarity yeah. and cost mm-hmm. for, for the things that we create out of the genius of our brains at the game tables. Um, so, so what, let, let's, let's go through these. What are the five guidelines that we recommend, you know, that we've learned from examining these when you are creating your own potion recipes? So the first one is rarity three. That is, or, that's the lowest basically that you should go. Um, don't go any lower than that. This is important as it's going to ensure that an alchemy check to craft is always at least two difficulty. Mm-hmm. So that's an important one to remember. So the first one, rarity three is the lowest that you should go. The second lesson that we've learned is rarity four or less is for minor effects that are usually instant. So things like healing, basically. Um, uh, the the one exception is the smoke bomb vial, but it does provide a small area of effect that is essentially a minor situational debuff because yeah. it's providing yeah. just some uh, setback die, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Lesson three: buffs should be rarity five or higher and have a duration associated to their power. So what does that mean? First of all, the stronger the buff, the higher the rarity. Okay, so if you're looking at at, at, at buffs that, that are being given from drinking a potion, like Bottled Courage, which has rarity 5, gives you an upgrade. Okay, and, and I do think it's actually overcosted, but but it, it gives you an upgrade, but only to one skill, discipline, and only against fear and coercion. Okay? Mm. The instant you start boosting a, a, a full characteristic on its own, or soak... Mm. Uh, that, that's that's rarity six territory, as we can see with power potion and protective tonic, and then adding an extra maneuver like the speed potion does, or flat out invisibility of plus four dice, which the invisibility potion gives you. That's rarity seven and nine respectively. Okay, yeah. so mm-hmm. if, if if a potion is buffing you in a duration based way, rarity five should be the lowest you go, and you really should look at higher at higher rarities the more powerful you go. If you're boosting a characteristic or better, and it includes soak, your wound or strain thresholds, that's rarity six territory. If you're getting into the crazy stuff in terms of messing with the action economy or mega mega buffs, that's rarity seven to nine. Mm, Absolutely. Also, it's important to note that heavy buffs, um, we should talk about this, have a limited duration. Did you notice that? I did, yeah. Um, th- th- and this is something we- we've seen with these 12 published. Buffs up to an upgrade or an increased characteristic have an end of encounter or scene duration. But if they get mm. stronger than that, such as the soak increase um, or the extra maneuvers or invisibility, um, those potions tend to follow the rule of three, um, You know, which yep. means they last for three turns or three rounds. So mm. another another mm. important thing to to keep in mind. And, and you can play with this. If you want it to be a slightly, slightly lower rarity by maybe one or maybe a reduced cost, maybe it's got a reduced duration. Maybe it only lasts for like a round. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. That's a really good point. So for the fourth point uh, that we have, uh, anything that deals damage 
should be rarity five or higher and still be situational. So, for example, the the poison and the acid flask, they're rarity five and six, respectively. Uh, both also give the target an, oh, I guess, an out, where whether it's making that resilience check or simply moving away from the affected area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something to consider there. Now, our final point um, is that potions can replicate spell effects as long as you make it suckier. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It is true. Um, that potions that seem to replicate spell effects do so always with either a higher alchemy difficulty than the spell, a much more limited effect, a high cost to craft, or an associated negative consequence. And usually two or three of those options. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's when you start breaking it down and looking at it, that's kind of what we've come up with. Well, I mean, look, um, if, you, if, you, if you look at the, I mean, like Power Potion, I got, my, I got my spell cards right in front of me, okay? Power Potion provides a very similar benefit to Augment, right? Right, right. But it only applies to Brawn, has mm-hmm. a difficulty of three to craft compared to Augment's difficulty of two to cast, yep. and it makes you suffer six strain when it's done. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's 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 three suckier things than augment. Okay. Mm, mm. And how long does the, po- the power potion last? Uh, encounter. An encounter. So that's going to be normally three to four rounds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm. Typically. So yeah. Interesting. Interesting. But yeah, you know, there's there's other examples too. I mean, uh, the, the the health elixir, which is a painkiller, basically, um, mm-hmm. it does what a heal spell can do, uh, but mm-hmm. at two difficulty dice because of its rarity to craft it. Casting a basic heal spell, that's one difficulty mm-hmm. die. Mm. And what about um, the immunity elixir as well? Um, it, yeah. it sort of does what heal with restoration uh, additional effect can do. Um, you know... Uh, at the same time, uh, at the same difficulty, but it only works on poisons or toxins, not all status effects, and you don't get the base healing effect either. Right, right. So you're sort of getting ripped off there as well. Um, so, uh, hmm, interesting, interesting. Well, what about our big one that we mentioned before? What about the invisibility potion? Well, I mean, it, it does what the mask spell, which was introduced in the in the EPG, um, it does what the mask spell can do um, when you mm-hmm. add the invi- invisibility additional effect to the mask spell. Um, yep. and, and they both have the same difficulty, which is a difficulty of five, um, yep. because you can't go higher than five. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the potion, unlike the spell, is limited to three rounds only. Yep. Um, and it has an ingredients cost of 500 if you're going to craft it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to if you want to produce enough for the party and you've got three thousand burning in your pocket, um, <laughs> you could attempt to spend six days to craft enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's feasible, I guess. You could do that. <laughs> so, but I mean, does that make sense? Though, I mean those those are the five real guidelines. So. Holy, I'd like to put these guidelines to task. I, I, you know, we're at a good point in our discussion right now. 
you know, and, and we're going to get into our normal, uh, the rest of the things to talk about for, for die casting, talking about species and careers and talents and equipment and, and, you know, raw, non-raw uses. But, you know, considering what we've gone through with crafting, I would love to brew a couple of, I would like to have you brew a couple potions tonight live on the show. Cool. <laughs> We have nothing prepared. I just want you to say that. Yes, literally. We, 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 the show notes say literally, wing it. Um, so, Huli, I'm going to be your GM, okay? Um, I've got table 217 uh, up, which is, which is um, in, in Realms of Terranoth, page 114, for your advantage and your triumph, mm-hmm. okay? And your threat and despair. Yep, yep, um, yep. And let's, let's say you've got an alchemist with an mm-hmm. alchemy pool. What, what do you what do you think? What 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 is the alchemist's intellect, and how many ranks do they have in the skill? Look, um, he's going to be a fairly good alchemist, I think. So I'm thinking uh, that he'd either have a three or a four in intellect, okay, and probably uh, a two in the skill. I think I think that's good. So you, what do you want to do? A three or a four? Oh, look, I'm going to go four. Because he's right. specialized in this particular area. All right, so we're doing we're doing two per, uh, we're doing two green and two yellow for your pool. Yeah, I'm going to need some dice, aren't I? I, I ideally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just hang on, two seconds. All right, so I've got a dice, and I have far too many dice. That's a side note. I also injured my finger, and it's really hard to get this open. All right, right, far too many dice, but that's good. Right, I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right, so let's let's brew a couple potions. Do you want to do two from whole cloth, or do you want to do one out of the book? What do you want to do? Um, I want to do one out of. I want to do one of each. Can we do one of each? Let's do one of each. Let, let's absolutely. Let's let's start simply. So so let's pick one of the twelve um, existing potions in realms of Terranoth. Which one do you want to craft? Attempt to craft. I want to do the power potion. The power potion. All right. So to begin with, you're going to need to gather your materials. Now, uh, uh, you know, through our, our game session, you would need to spend either 125 credits, which is half of the power potions cost, to go purchase those mm-hmm. materials or go spend a day gathering them. Now, we're right. going to assume... I don't think because it's listed a power potion needs anything special or unique. Um, so we're going to assume that you've obtained those materials. Okay. Okay. No worries. Now, the power potion has a rarity of six, which means that your base crafting difficulty is going to be three purple dice. So that's going to put what? your pool at your two yellow, two green, and three purple. Righty Two yellow, two green. Righty have I got an alchemist kit? But we'll talk about that later on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, I would say that you you're out in the field, but you do have your alchemist kit, so you've got the right tools for the job. Excellent. So I'll get a boost eye out of that. No, you won't. Very- boost eye is given to you for an alchemist lab, which you do not have, and you don't need it with your four dice pool, you freaking weirdo. <laughs> you've always got a fish for uh, fish for a boost from the GM. Jeez. Well, that's what my players keep telling me. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> you can fish all you want. Doesn't mean you're going to catch anything. <laughs> all right. Just rolling that now. And what have we got? So, oh, that's pretty cool. But the rest of it isn't. Oh, my God. That's awful. Right. So that's a, um, that's a failure. That's not what I wanted to roll at all. Uh, so, yeah, that's a failure with... Two advantages and a triumph. 
Oh, man. Okay, well, you, you failed, man. Just straight up. Seven hours with attempt. You did not brew the potion, but you do have some advantage and a triumph. Do right. you want to maybe salvage your ingredients? I would like to salvage the ingredients so that I haven't wasted my time and I don't have to go back and um, fight the ferocious uh, owlbear again uh, to get its spleen or whatever the hell that I need. <laughs> All right. So, so no, you, 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 man, you managed to pull that elusive owlbear spleen out of the, out of the, uh, the cauldron just in time um, and you curse yourself. You get a good night of sleep and resolve to try again the next day. Right. I'm, I'm going to give you one more chance here. Um, right. Now, you, I, w- I would say, I would say the ingredient saving is triumph worthy, right? Right. Yep. Absolutely. You still had, you still had two advantage, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm thinking that I've done this once now. I know what mistakes that I've made, so I think a, a, a boost on might be appropriate. So I'm going to throw a boost on my way. I think that's a fantastic idea. You you learn from your mistakes. You're going to try again the next day with a, a fresh pair of eyes and uh, hopefully only slightly singed eyebrows. <laughs> uh, that's looking a little bit better. So there is a triumph in amongst the mix. Oh, my. And it is two successes, three threat. <laughs> That's always the no. No, but anyway, yeah, so it's two successes, a triumph, and three threat. Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> okay, so you succeeded to brew the potion. So it's straight up, your power potion that you've brewed has its base effect. If, if you drink it, it will increase brawn by one um, mm-hmm. for the duration of the encounter. Um, right. You also rolled a triumph. Now, mm. what do you want to do with that? Because now you get the chance to boost your potion even more. And in just a bit, I'm going to get the chance to apply those threat to give a negative consequence to your potion. Well, I'd actually like to get uh, a little bit of extra wounds on top of that as well and maybe give myself um, two additional wounds temporarily uh, to my wound threshold, which is what I'd like to do. Oh, wow. Well, that's not that's not one of the things on table 217. But oh. I... I think it's um you say wound threshold? I mm. think that's I think that's reasonable for a triumph. Okay. Cool. Uh, you know, cuz cuz it says you know the potion is more effective than normal as determined by the GM. I think I think that's 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 a very good use of power. We'll we'll increase your wound threshold by by two for the duration. I think that's totally reasonable for the triumph. So cool. now you have a power potion that not only increases your brawn by one for the encounter duration, but also increases your wound threshold by two when you drink it. Mm. But now I have three threat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, looking at the, at the suggested table 217 for three threat, I could have it to where you suffer a wound when you drink this potion. Um, cool after benefiting from its effects. But Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to do the other suggestion with it, (laughs) which is I'm going to reduce the duration of this potion. So you have an awesome power potion that now increases your brawn by one and your wound threshold by two, but Mm. it is only going to last for two rounds. Ooh, but you don't let your player know that. All right. So there is your brew example. All right, man. So something straight out of the book and how it can be done. Hit me up with another potion, man. Uh, something out of your head, maybe? What are you thinking? 
One of the my favorite potions from D&D is a potion of gaseous form. Oh, wow. So I'm going to go with that. Okay, so this is going to be very hard right away, but talk to me first about what the, the effects are going to be. What does gaseous form mean for the mechanics mm-hmm. of Genesis? So for the mechanics of Genesis, it means that I can't attack at all. So I'm basically giving myself the, uh, the what is it? Um, it's not the immobilized, it's the other one. It's a staggered condition. So I can't attack while I'm in that form. Um, but I can't be attacked unless I'm attacked with, normally in D&D it would be a uh, magical weapon, but there's no such thing really as magical weapons. So it'd have to be a, a weapon with um, some sort of magical properties. Yeah, I wouldn't um, even go like like uh, you're still you're still thinking D and D. I mean, this I is this is Genesis. We can be narrative. You can simply say, you know, uh, you know, is immune to the majority of of physical attacks right. per per mm-hmm. GM discretion. Okay, mm-hmm. but what that mm-hmm. means that if somebody shoots a magical attack at you, I'm well within my rights to say that it does affect you. Okay, sure, but we can handle mm-hmm. that narratively. Um, cool. we'll do it. So, is the gas visible? Yes. Okay. Um, but it, it's uh, and, and I'm assuming it can go under doorways and and can you fly? Yes, oh, it, yes you can. Um, and uh, yeah, you're not limited as to where you can go. So you can go under doors. You can go through grates in in the uh, in the roadway and things like that. So um, so yeah. So you you're not hindered by any sort of terrain. Okay. So here's how I think we're going to do this, Uli, if it's okay with you. Um, It has some pretty powerful benefit, but at the same time, it's got some pretty severe limitations. You you basically can't interact with the physical world, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And furthermore, I don't think you have any control over when this effect ends. It's a potion, okay? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to use the rule of three because this is definitely going to be a high rarity potion. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the rule of three on this. So I'm going to say that Mm -hmm. once you drink this, it lasts for your next three turns. That's it. Um, Mm -hmm. No more, no less. You don't get control over that. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, Additionally, I would say you probably also get, I would say, plus two dice on concealment, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, which I think is very fitting. So yep. ba- based on that, with three rounds and that effect for gaseous form potion, I'm mm. thinking a rarity of around eight. Oof, yes. I mean, do you disagree? I agree with that. Okay. No, I, do, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking of a rarity of eight. I, I, was, I was tempted to go nine, but quite frankly, it's very limited, um, mm. you know, because you can't interact with anything. Um, but, yep. but you get some really cool benefits like flight and the ability to basically pass through solid objects if there's cracks. So I, I think mm. it's still worthy of, of a rarity of eight and I would probably cost it at around 700. Right. Yep. Okay. That's um, unfair because especially if you're comparing it to, uh, invisibility, which is sort of, uh, it has similar sort of properties, but, but yeah, and it's a thousand. So 700 makes sense to me. Okay. So to attempt to craft this potion with a rarity of eight, it's going to take you nine hours to even attempt it. Okay, um, and you've got to get the materials, which is going to cost you three uh, uh, 
350 currency. However, Uli, in addition to that, I do think you're going to have to go on a special quest that we'll assume you've been on um, to maybe not not necessarily a quest, but to find a very, very special ingredient, um, which is going to be the shroud wrappings of a wisp. Oh, that sounds deadly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But you happen to have some from one of your prior adventures, so you can attempt Oh, Oh, very good. All right. So you've got your ingredients. Um, Mm. With a rarity of eight, this is going to be four purple dice. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go ahead? I'm going to spend a story point to upgrade Mm. the difficulty of this. I knew you were going to do that to me. (laughs) It was that uh, it's a reminder of that niggling injury that I had uh, when, uh, when we fought the wisp. That, yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 it scared you. Better yet, the wisp—the wisp's natural fear effect worked on you, mm. and and you're mm. still that lingering fear and that memory haunts you mm. still. Mm. I'm having flashbacks, man. Oh yeah. Um, can I spend a story point to upgrade my check? <laughs> I, I did. You can too. So you're working at. So basically, your pool now is what three yellow, one green versus three purple, purple and, and one, one red. red. That's it. All right. Let's do this. Yeah, well, no triumph, but that's not what I wanted to see. (laughs) Okay. So I have succeeded with one success. (laughs) Nice. Um, And two threat. (laughs) One despair. (laughs) Oh, you got a despair. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That that's typical my role when I have to roll as a player. Oh, that's him, fantastic! <laughs> um, so yeah, so okay. I success, threat, <clears throat> and one despair. So you succeeded in crafting the potion, and if you drink it, it will turn you into a gaseous form. Now, as a GM, I can delay the negative effects of those potion until the appropriate time. But just for consistency's sake, I'll reveal to you now what they are. For your okay. two threat and your despair. Um, mm. For the despair, I, I love this one. When you use this potion, and this is actually very fitting considering the residual psychic scars your battle with the wisp left on you. Ooh. When you drink this potion, you or whoever does has to succeed on an average two purple resilience check. And if you fail, oh. your body rejects the potion and it simply does not take effect. Wow. That's cool. All right. And for the two threat, mm-hmm. um, I'll go easy on you, and I'll say that um, your earlier efforts uh, of, of saving the owlbear spleen for your last potion, um, you weren't as lucky right. this time around. You accidentally uh, dropped a couple vials you shouldn't have, and you have to go back out there and purchase additional ingredients um, worth another 175 currency. <laughs> That's an expensive exercise. Quite. <laughs> that's very, very cool. And that's that's just done on the fly. As, as we said before, we haven't sat down and gone, right, we're going to work out exactly what we're going to roll or anything like that. that that's totally live. So that's awesome. That was great, Chris. Oh, I love, I love brewing potions, man. They're so much fun. They really are. <laughs> they really um, are. I, 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 I abs- absolutely, absolutely love it. So, guys, I hope I hope that exercise has 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 
you know, helped put these crafting rules in perspective for you. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, honestly, I think it's time to really get down into the nitty gritty and yeah. talk about some of the other rules that really do apply to alchemy. Right, so we've looked at all of the the brewing rules so far, but let's take a look at some species first up. So what ah. species are there that uh, cover alchemy? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we have a brand new, uh, you know, published supplement book now in terms hmm. of, of Secrets of the Crucible to consider, yep. right? That is true. And I have to say... Considering the kitchen sink that is Keyforge, yeah. I was shocked to discover hmm. that alchemy was not a setting skill. Oh. Um, and and thus, because it's, I, frankly, I think it would fit well. I don't know. It might be bloat. Keyforge has enough going on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And when you would you bring in <laughs> would you bring in amber as well in terms of the craft that you can do yeah. that? I can understand why they left it out. Yeah. yeah. But the bottom line is that secrets of the crucible, shadow of the beanstalk. Obviously, there's no no species there either because it's mm. not even a skill in the setting. Yeah. The core rule book. And the EPG don't even have any careers, uh, or excuse me, any species noted that yeah. have have anything to do with um, with 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 alchemy at all. Yeah. Um, the only the only species or archetype we see that has anything to do with it is in realms of Terranoth, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. and interestingly, is Sunderland orcs mm. who get one free rank if you really want to make your mad orc alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm just picturing that. Uh, big orc with a lab coat. Um, <laughs> is that crazy? Anyway, moving along. Yeah, that's, that's really bizarre that uh, that none of them. I, I, I would have thought that Core Rulebook would have had something, but um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> It's kind of a it's kind of a hedge thing. I mean, when you're when you're talking about about species or archetypes, I mean, yeah. like, I mean, you're not going to find one with mechanics. Okay? True. True. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because again, it's it's kind of a crafting thing. It's more of a it's 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 an acquired skill. It's very rare to see it as a part of your species or archetype. Sunderland mm-hmm. orcs, because of their history in Minara, are mm-hmm. a bit unique. It's yeah. kind of a cultural thing for them. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I guess the other surprise was nothing from the EPG, especially when you've got that monster world setting that um, your mad scientist is, is sort of someone who is you. It's it's very very um, thematic, I guess, for that sort of sense, and and it's a bit of a trope. So, well, I mean, but yeah, but you you can cover that in careers. Even then, for monster true. world, it's hard it's hard to see a species or or an archetype yeah, that true. is you know. That is, Going to have that associated with it, but I do think careers are a different story. Yeah, true, true, and that that's where it does play out a little bit more. Uh, but uh, I mean, there's no careers at all uh, in EPG anyway, so uh, so that's pretty much right. Covered. Yeah, but all that we have really left is uh, the core rule book, uh, Realms of Terranoth, Shadow of the Beanstalk, and uh, Secrets of the Crucible. Now, uh, as Chris sort of mentioned, it's not even on the skill list for Secrets of the Crucible. 
It's not on the skill list at all for Shadow of the Beanstalk. So realistically, the only ones we can expect stuff to be coming from is the core rulebook and Realms of Taranoth, and that's exactly what's happened. So for uh, Alchemy Falls under in the core rulebook, it's under Mad Scientist, obviously, uh, in a fantasy setting. Because it gives a couple of options there for wizards um, to use alchemy, or think the other one. Oh, I can't remember. It's 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 athletics. Interestingly enough, I believe yeah. I believe if it's um it could ah, it could be skullduggery. It's either athletics or skullduggery. I need to look. But yep. um, if you're in a non fantasy setting, but if you're in a fantasy setting, yeah, of course, alchemy <laughs> should be on the skill list for a wizard. Absolutely. And so in realms of Terranoth, we've got the mage, we've got the primalist, and then we've got the scholar. So this is all pretty obvious stuff, um, and uh, it slots into those quite nicely. Oh, yeah. Now, what about talents? You know, considering that we've said that alchemy really only manifests itself in the Koro book and Realms of Terranoth, do we have, do we have any talents that are alchemy-related? Look, there is one talent um, specifically for alchemy, which is located, understandably, as you say, in realms of Terranoth, and that is Potent Concoctions. Now, it's a Tier 3 talent. Uh, it's on page 90 in realms of Terranoth. It's a passive and non-ranked, and when you make an alchemy check that generates a triumph, roll an additional yellow die and add its results to the pool in addition to spending the triumph normally. So it's kind of like an open-ended triumph, but it only happens once. Mm. Um, and when you, but likewise, when you make an alchemy check that generates a despair, you roll an additional red die and add its results to the pool, in addition to spending the despair normally. So it's a little bit haphazard in that regard. You wouldn't be rolling any red dice at all uh, in your check if you were going, uh, I think I'm going to be using my um, potent concoctions. But the problem is that it's passive, so you don't have a choice. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, um, however, there, um, there is another key alchemy-related talent though it's not specific to alchemy. Uh, and, and that's something that we found, which is in the core rulebook, which is in Inventor. So it's a Tier 3 talent, core rulebook, page 76. Now it's an active incidental uh, talent, and it is ranked, which is interesting within itself. And when your character makes a check to construct new items or modify existing ones, Use this talent to add a number of boost die to the check equal to ranks of inventor. In addition, your character may attempt to reconstruct devices that they have heard described but have not seen and do not have any kinds of plans or schematics for. Now, in my opinion, this is a fantastic talent for alchemists. It might not necessarily be what it's originally designed for, but I tell you what. If um, all that you've got is you know what the smells or what some of the uh, the stuff that's been laid out on a on a workbench that you might be sort of doing a bit of forensic discovery or whatever else, um, you sure you might be able to name some of the things, but with this you can actually recreate it um, because you you've sort of as it sort of says is that, um, you know, even if 
you you want to attempt to reconstruct this particular potion that this evil wizard that you've been chasing might want to um, might be using, um, or a or a poison or something like that that they're using. So um, you can go ahead and recreate it. This talent makes me think of Skyrim, actually. Right. Um, yes. If you've ever if you've ever played Skyrim and you get into 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 crafting potions, mm-hmm. um, you know, just by messing around with the ingredients, you know, in in alchemy, you you can learn some of their baser capabilities. Like, oh, I know that this berry uh, can have a couple different effects, and so you you sort of narratively through that game learn. Okay, well, if I mix this, this, and this that might lead to poison or invisibility. And so I see the, I see the inventor talent is kind of the same thing. It's like, it, it could just be that you know your craft well enough mm-hmm. that you're like, okay, I understand what you want to do. I don't necessarily need to have uh, a recipe mm-hmm. or formula to make this, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think I, I think I can muddle through it. <laughs> um, and I, I really like that. But let's be frank, the boost die for each rank is just essential. And Absolutely. You know, uh, when, you know, brewing a potion is constructing an item per this talent. So mm-hmm. it's, it really is a fantastic choice. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of lukewarm on on potent concoctions because, man, that despair is just. <laughs> um, I I I mean, woof. Um, uh, although to be fair, it's not often unless you have a jerk GM like me. Uh, when what I did to you, uh, who spends story points, it's not often you're going to have a red die in that difficulty pool. No, um, but true. but my my gosh, do you really want to risk it? So that's <laughs> yeah, that's a but inventor. Oh, inventor all day, all day. Yeah, 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 all absolutely. day. Can you imagine potent concoctions with a talent like double or nothing? From uh, I know that's a Star Wars talent. But um, where basically you double the results of whatever, like you double triumphs, um, and uh, you double the spares. <laughs> you, you yeah, have a that's really bad day. <laughs> that's 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 very 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 tough, man. Now, while we're talking about talents, there is one other thing I did want to bring up. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. there are talents I've seen in various sources, especially on the Foundry. Mm-hmm. Um, that are inspired by a lot of the things we've seen in Star Wars, um, where and this is very common uh, when you have a, a, a career or not a career, but a, a character um, or a, a character role that yeah. is the the entrepreneur or the businessman mm-hmm. who uh, talents that allow you to reduce the rarity when you're purchasing an object, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. Um, or locating an object, yeah. all right. Um, those talents are fine and well and good. And golly gee, if you're going to buy a potion, they certainly could apply. But it's important to note as a GM that do not let player shenaniganry happen where you've got an alchemist who decides to take that talent and then say, oh, well, the rarity for this potion is one less for me. So that reduces my crafting difficulty. No. <laughs> that could turn very, very bad. <laughs> very, very bad. Um so just just a note, keep that in mind. Mm. Because definitely if you were to start sort of going down that path, you're starting to look at your, you know, what would normally be a five difficulty. Um, you can be looking at, you know, three difficulty instead. And that's just when the game starts. Yeah. To- so that's a reason why that, that talent doesn't exist. 
because if it did, there'd be all sorts of dramas. So, uh, so yeah. So that's the the talents that exist in the system. But what about gear, Chris? Well, it's worth noting, understandably, that all gear and equipment related to alchemy is located in realms of Terranoth. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you could actually include the actual alchemical potions that are in Terranoth, but we've kind of already gone through that. So, yep. in terms of, of just gear, there's two things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both on page 100 of Realms of Terranoth. There's the Alchemist Kit and the Alchemist Lab, okay? mm-hmm. um, which we also touched upon in our potion-making example. <laughs> there's really um, so th- there's the alchemist kit, which is a basic kit. It's just, it's just a, it's, 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 it's a toolkit for alchemists. It's, it's, it's easily portable. You can shove it in the backpack. It's got your, your mixture of, of tinctures and vials and a little Bunsen burner and things like that. And, um, you know, basically having this means that you've got the right tools for the job to make your alchemy checks. Okay. You, you need to have this to do the work. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Although it says in the description that per GM discretion, you may need to locate unusual or specialized ingredients that are not in your kit because your kit is, is designed to have basic ingredients in it. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, although the rules don't say this, a lot of GMs that I've, I've seen use this say, basically, look, if you've got this kit, you've got the ingredients to make any potion you want it, it depends on the GM. Usually, usually it's rarity six or five or lower. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've seen some GMs say rarity five or lower. I've seen some say rarity six or lower because they want their players to be able to create a power potion in the field yeah. or a protective tonic. Hmm. Um, and so I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Hmm. Um, but the next step up, though, is the Alchemist Lab. Hmm. Okay. And, and the Alchemist Lab... Um, it says w- when making alchemy checks, you've got the benefits of the alchemist kit. So you've got the right tools for the job, but you also add a boost die to your alchemy checks when you're in your lab, because it's a lab, you know, it's, it's a full lab. You've got a, a much higher, um, uh, uh, you know, amount of materials to work with. Um, you've got a lot more ingredients at your disposal. And again, though, it's not codified in the rules. I've seen most GMs say, look, if you want to go up to like a, a rarity seven, or maybe even in some cases eight, you can do it in your lab if you have a lab. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know and, and that it, you, it's just assumed to be there as part of the purchase price of your lab, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, it's a lab, and and you know the the tools and the devices in it are extremely heavy and cumbersome. Thus, they require a room to contain them. Okay, <laughs> so. You can purchase a lab, but if you don't have somewhere to install it or put it or keep things, you're kind of SOL. And it is also worth noting, they actually call out in the description that a lab can be actually considered somewhat portable if a wagon and a draft animal are given over entirely to transporting it. Yeah. So if you wanted to have a dedicated wagon and a draft animal specifically for your alchemist lab you could do it and that could be a fun character concept i don't know <laughs> but that's something really important to note and i know that um i you know was fishing for for boost die but something that and there are a couple of other items that are very similar to this is that the alchemist kit allows you to make it without some sort of penalty um, and then the Alchemist Lab, that then gives you additional boost die and whatever else. If a character, for whatever reason, is separated from the Alchemist kit, look at doing setback die. And depending on what it is that they're actually looking for, it is, as you said before, Chris, if, you, if you've got someone who was looking for a, you know, a seven or an eight, 
um, or as you said, some sometimes that there's this six element involved that um, as far as the rarity goes, what's going to happen is that you should be saying, well, look, that's a really rare item. So maybe it might be out in the wilderness. Is it going to be in your, your cell? No way in the world. Um, you know, you could you can probably do something much, much lower uh, rarity. Yeah, I I have a I have a hard time letting somebody try a an alchemy check without at least a kit because mm. I mean I mean I, I'm not saying it's impossible and this is the system of yes and right right but but if you're doing it you know if, I would say for anything rarity three or four or lo, you know rarity three or four I would I would impose major setback die mm. and if you're even going to allow anything of higher rarity to be performed without a kit or a lab. At that point, I would actually be doing upgrades. Yep. Yeah. Because because the risk of major negative consequences on your potion are huge. Indeed. So what about we you know, when we have this segment, Huli, we normally talk mm. about uses for advantage, triumph, threat, and despair. Mm. Um but because the use of alchemy as a crafting skill already has standard uses for advantage triumph threat and despair in terms of what happens when you brew the potion in the actual recipe yeah to a large degree that's what you should be using the narrative results for yeah yeah i agree however if you're using alchemy not for crafting ah. for other usages such as identifications then we've got some suggestions <laughs> so, with advantages, uh, you could provide some extra info about the effects of a potion, such as additional effects or hindrances it might have. Um, or with multiple advantages, um, you know, you might even have made the potion um, previously uh, in your adventures um, or even before turning into an adventurer. So, um, so you, you also, with multiple advantages, could identify who made this particular that potion. That is, um, you know, like like oh, I I recognize the crafter of this, which which could have some interesting ramifications. Mm. Mm. Um, but keep in mind, basic success with identification should let you know what kind of potion it is, but not any crazy effects that it might have as a result of the crafter's advantage, triumph, yeah. or despair. Mm. So this is a great use for advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So triumphs, uh, and this is always the fun one for me, uh, this could teach a seasoned alchemist something new, uh, whether it be by seeing a new formula um, so that you can link it in with the other talents, such as um, uh, the concoction one we were talking about before. Or inventor, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, providing upgrades or boost died to the alchemy check uh, they uh, they make to recreate the potion. So um, if you've got a scenario where you've you've got it all spelled out, um, that, uh, that the triumph could be um, used to then uh, when you're going to create it um, to to pass that, I guess the upgrade to yourself um, or to somebody else that may have, um, you know, a, a better skill that you know of, like an NPC or something like that. So, um, so yeah, that's another way. But what about threats and, tr and despairs? So when you're talking about identification and you're getting onto the negative side of things, okay, threat on a success, 
okay means straight up you know the base effect of the potion because you succeeded mm-hmm. but you fail to recognize problems the potion may have mm-hmm. um like like major hindrances that's that's straight up and obvious okay mm-hmm. um now despairs oh boy my favorite on <laughs> on a on a success on a successful check so you mm-hmm. successfully identify the potion but you roll a despair mm-hmm. this could be used to accidentally sample the potion <laughs> <laughs> Right, um, and, it, <laughs> and if you and if you don't want to be jerky enough to uh, say, "Oh, you accidentally just took it," and you've you're now doing the effects, if you don't want to be that jerky, you can you can say, "Okay, maybe you you sampled too much in your identification, therefore it would it's re- it reduces the effect for the next actual use of the potion." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, despair on a failure, like. Like a failed check to identify is just like, look, I don't know what it is. If you fail with a despair, that's <laughs> like, oh yeah, I know exactly what this is, and you're totally <laughs> wrong. Okay, <laughs> complete misidentification of the potion and what it does. Um, you know, it's going to require some 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 good narrative metagamey role playing from the player and the GM, obviously, because everyone's seen the dice roll. But yep. you know, the GM, the, you know, the GM, I, you know, I have good players, and so it's like, you know, hey, no, you you know this is a po- this is a power <laughs> potion. You know this is a, you sure it's not poison? No, this is a power potion. Okay, <laughs> you you know it. You've seen it. I mean, yeah, to- totally, totally. Yeah, you're so confident. You just slap that label on and throw it in with the rest of them. Good job. <laughs> or you sell it to an unscrupulous merchant. God, what kind of problems could that bring you later? Um, yikes! Top price, <laughs> especially if the PCs are desperate and they're they're trying to create something, and they go, "Yeah, look, this guy comes in just as you're in the middle of making it." And says, "Oh, look, that looks absolutely amazing. Oh, I, I really want it. I'll give you top dollar." Not <laughs> <laughs> bad, written all over it. It's great. Love it. Oh, man. so we've talked about advantage, triumph, threat, and despair. Hmm. The other thing we like to talk about, of course, and kind of cap off our discussion uh, in diecasting with, is the raw uses for alchemy, and hmm. then the non-standard and non-raw uses for alchemy. Yeah. In terms of the raw uses for alchemy, guys, I mean. Normally, we we talk about random things that are still within the raw for this skill, but there's not much else to cover here that we haven't already covered. Um, You know, as a reminder, rules is written. This skill is used to identify potions, and it's used to brew potions. That's what it's used for. Mm -hmm. But, Huli, what about the non-standard or non-raw uses for alchemy do we have some creative things we do now the first one and uh, i think uh, from conversations that we've had in the past that you've had this same thing done to you and i know that my players have done it uh, to me as well for me it was a monstrous spider that um, they uh, they decided right well um i've heard somewhere that uh, you can cut out the um, the poison sack, and we're going to store them. And I'm just going, oh, God. right? So monster harvesting is a thing. Um, so, you know, this I know this is a little bit left field, um, but, um, you know, it was brilliant. And, and I just said, yeah, I'm sure that will come up later on, so let's do it. So, you know, after slaying this, this uh, spider, the party wanted to harvest the poison from its glands. So, um, 
you know, survival is one option uh, that I think is the one that I suggested. Um, yeah, makes sense. But, makes sense. Um, but yeah, you could use alchemy instead um, if the GM allowed it. But I, I think that after it was recommended, that I did suggest uh, two setback die uh, because this is something which is it's it's certainly a reasonable request, and again, it goes back to the yes and. Um, so. Yeah, and there's going to be some setback die because it is sort of so out of left field. Absolutely. Absolutely. You could do a setback die or an increased difficulty. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, completely, completely. Um, I mean, I might even do an upgraded difficulty instead of increase because, quite frankly, it's not survival. It's alchemy. So you understand about it. So you're, I mean, survival is the skill to butcher a beast, okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Alchemy is not so much. Not at all. So no. as a result, the, the the chance of accidentally poking yourself because you don't know what you're doing or rupturing <laughs> that poison gland, yeah, um, is, is a bit harder. So I think I think that could be easily represented with an upgrade too. Mm. So, mm. Uh, but yeah, dude, setback, increased difficulty, upgrades, totally reasonable, totally reasonable. Mm. But what else? Uh, so this is an interesting one, a commerce. Mm. Um, this may not be something you want to allow without a specialized talent. Okay. But uh, because I, I could see a talent be, we didn't create one, but I could see a talent being created that basically says, "Look, when you're when you're wanting to 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 buy and sell ingredients or potions, hmm. you could use alchemy in place of negotiation." Okay, hmm. um, you know, I, I you know, if you're dealing with another alchemist, perhaps or an academic, all mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, I, I would put that qualifier on it. Yep. Um, uh, you know, whereas where the idea is, if you can talk shop with, if you can talk shop with the guy, yep. you know, you know that can serve as your negotiation. Whereas if you go to to Jim Bob, the street vendor, or the general goods store, that's not going to work. They're not going to care, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, but so so you may not want to allow this without a specialized talent. But mm-hmm. even without a specialized talent, I think the GM is well within the norm to allow alchemy to be used as the skill in place of negotiation, or even streetwise, frankly, to to locate, purchase, or sell potions and ingredients i would do it at an increased difficulty <laughs> no doubt yeah. but still but still and, and this all comes down to the fact that because alchemy is more than a crafting skill it's also an academic skill that represents knowledge of alchemical ingredients and potions it's it's not it's not that far of a stretch and even even without a talent you could say like look if you're dealing with a scholar or a mage or, or an alchemist, if you actually go to an alchemist shop, that you could use your alchemy to talk shop with them, even without a talent. Yeah. That's, you know, maybe at increased difficulty. That's not that far a stretch. Mm. Very good suggestion. That's cool. I like it. Um, so um, now they're the sort of the non-standard, non-raw that we've come up with just off the top of our heads. But what about the way that we always like to do things, Chris? <laughs> Talents. <laughs> exactly. Talent. Uh, you know, that it's it's the easiest non-raw use of, of the alchemy skill. Uh, and secondly, we like to do it. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, there's only a couple of talents in the entire game that deal with alchemy. And to be honest, this just isn't acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> so as we do, we've created some talents that, uh, we'd like to go through with you all uh, to uh, to let you know how we think that um, some talents could be applied 
uh, that really focus in on the alchemy skill. So, Chris, what's our first one? Uh, Let's see. This is one that I got inspired by. I actually created a different version of this for my Harry Potter setting years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And this talent is called Prepared Potion. Mm. So, it's a tier one talent. That may be too low, but I'd love for playtesting. I don't think it is, considering it's a once-per-session talent. Right. It's a tier one talent. It is an active talent that requires a maneuver. Mm-hmm. And it is ranked. Mm. Once per session, your character may perform the prepared potion maneuver. You select any potion or other alchemical item with a rarity of three or less and immediately make an alchemy check to craft the potion, following normal alchemy crafting rules. With success, the potion is immediately produced, and any determined advantage, triumph, threat, and despair results are applied normally. Each additional rank of the talent increases the rarity of the potion you may attempt to produce by one. Okay. Hmm. Narratively, though, your character must have had access to an alchemist kit or lab within the last two days, Mm-hmm. with appropriate downtime for crafting, as well as access to any ingredients the potion would have needed during that time. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the idea here, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the tool belt talent. It's the idea of being able to, without having to spend a story point, retroactively go, oh no, I did brew that. Okay, <laughs> Right, yep. Um, you know, oh wait, I prepared that. And it's one of those things, alchemy is, is all about preparation. Okay, and and a character that's an alchemist and really is devoted to that, they're going to have a bandolier filled with different vials and potions and stuff like that. All the things they prepared, right? Right. But that, but that, that's an expensive endeavor. Okay, it takes time, it takes preparation, it takes money, hmm. and and ultimately, uh, if you all those things are finite resources, and so sometimes you have a moment where it's like. I don't, you know, I, I didn't think to produce this or I didn't think this would come up or I wasn't sure what to produce. And, oh, my gosh, we're in a situation and I want to, you know, I, I I really, really, really need a, you know, restorative potion. Hmm. Um, I just happened to prepare that. Aha. Right. <laughs> so so once per session still, even with the ranks, it's just once per session. But I, I really like this idea. I think it gives a little more teeth to the concept of an alchemist um, mm-hmm. and allowing you to play a more active alchemist character mm-hmm. that isn't spending all of their session time down de- at, as as in-game downtime brewing potions. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Possibly the only modification that I would make to this, and again, this needs sort of playtesting, um, is that this could perfectly be one of those talents that is specific to a career. We've seen species-specific talents. Uh, we've seen talents that require other talents to even have in the first place. Well, one thing that we haven't really seen explored um, is talents that require a specific career. Now, I know that Chris Markham has started to go down that path with uh, I think one of the the supplements that he had, but um, yeah, I think that if you were to have like an alchemist character, uh, that uh, that that's their career, uh, and that's the name of the career, you would you could possibly have that. You must be an alchemist mm. to have the skill. If you're to, to have this talent, if that's the the direction that you want to go, obviously. Yeah, you, you, that's another thing. I think you and I are gonna have to disagree with. I and I've seen some of the work Markham has done on that. I I, I really don't like it. 
Um, okay. I, 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 I just, it, it violates the spirit of the game for me. Look, it, it is very D&D-ish, I must admit. Um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I've been having this conversation with a couple of people that I, um, uh, and they disagree with me as well. Uh, I'm always trying to find ways um, to remove boundaries from, from D&D players uh, that, um, you know, don't necessarily want to try Genesis because these boundaries are in the way. I'm trying to find ways to, well, actually, we can do this and remove that boundary um, so that they don't really have an excuse at the end of the day. And if they uh, eventually it'll get to the point where they just come up with the 20th excuse and I'm going, okay, that's fine. You stick to b and I don't know. It's like there there is a solution if you really want to do that, and that's just to create specializations. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 not a, it's not a talent limited to a specific career. It's just a talent mm-hmm. that, I mean – it's a it's a specialization that only has access to specific talents. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so so I mean that's that's the solution to me if you want to go that route. But mm. I mean I'm, I mean if you if you if you really if you really need to have a structured career like that or structured choices associated with some type of a role you play, mm-hmm. um, in order to, I mean be, because D and D is training you that that's the only way it's supposed to be. I mean if that's if that's really what you need. Then just use specializations, but sure. I, I'm, I'm really not. I mean, but you know me, man. I, I, I fell hard. I mean, I mean, dude, this is who are you talking to here? Okay, I, <laughs> I, I mean, why not? Why not? I'm, I'm Mr. Star Wars, man. Okay, and <laughs> and but but I have fallen so hard in love with the talent pyramid, mm. and like like and and dude, I, I know we're we're probably going to talk about this a bit uh, with Eric when he comes on. Yeah, but. That that decision to make role based career decisions mm. as opposed to these rigid class style um, choices are are what I think Genesis' greatest strength is. Yeah, I would agree. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm 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 I won't put my weight behind that. But but either way. But anyway, anyway, what's our next talent? Because <laughs> because we have more. We do. So the next one is potion pitcher. Um, this went through a few different um, iterations as far as its names go. <laughs> we can't stay on a family-friendly program. Um, but uh, Pochin Pitcher is what we went with. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, it's a Tier 2. Activation is passive and it's non-ranked. And it says, when hurling a potion or other alchemical item designed to be thrown at a target or area, your character may increase the range of the thrown potion or alchemical item up to medium range. So we really wanted to give some more versatility to you know the the oddball alchemical items which are out there. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, yes, there is. I think I can't even remember where it is. Um, and if there was a translation for it in Genesis, uh, that um, thrown grenades. Um, you strong? Was it strong arm or something like that? Or there, there, there was a, there was a Star Wars talent called strong arm that allows you to increase the range of a thrown weapon from short to medium. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but uh, honestly, um, that was very common in Star Wars, but but led to a lot of brokenness. It really oh, did oh, yeah. because because of grenades. Mm. Okay, um, but. No alchemical potion is going to have the potency of a grenade. 
No. Okay. No. So I, I like that. I I like this talent because it, it lets you make that that mad alchemist, that grenadier, right? <laughs> yes. Um, that's hurling alchemist fire or, or acid flasks, you know, at, at, in, into battle at medium range. I, um, I, I really, really like that idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very, very cool. Uh, now we've got one other, and what is that one? Ah, uh, Potioneer. Mm. Um, this is another tier two. Mm-hmm. Um, is passive activation, but it is ranked. So this is a ranked talent that starts at tier two. Hmm. I'd be very interested to see some play testing on this because it may need to bump its tier to three, but we, we settled on two. Yep. When making an alchemy check to craft a potion or other alchemical item, your character adds an automatic advantage to the results of the check for each rank of potioneer. Hmm. Um, this is this is the master potion maker talent. That's what it's designed to do to to be able to get those beneficial effects. And and ultimately, remember with um with uh, gosh, how many how many advantage was it based on on table two two dot seventeen um in realms of Terranoth? I believe it is um, two two advantage. Okay. Um, you, you can reduce the time to prepare the potion by half. Okay. Uh-huh. Yep. And and if you're gonna if you're gonna be a real potioner. It, you know, you need you need to have speed in potion making. You mm. really, really do. Um, three advantage, and you you have enough ingredients left over to craft another batch entirely. Okay, mm-hmm. so so you know when you're when you're making that you know that that potioner who's constantly churning out potions, mm. the ability to do it in half the time or to have enough ingredients left over to do to, to another batch means that you can be producing for half the cost or twice as quick and really start building up in, during that downtime you have in game, that repertoire mm. of, of potions that are going to be available. Mm. That can turn pretty potent, especially if you've already got a really good skill as it is and you're having yeah. lots of advantages, you're going to build on those. So you can be giving your, uh, your potions additional effects too at the same time. Um, obviously the, you know, you'd be using up your advantages very, very quickly. Um, and why would you if you can make multiple <laughs> multiple versions of the same thing? Um, yeah, I mean, but, but it's it's not going to be it's not going to be humongous. I mean, look, no. if if you if you really get into the table in terms of what you can do with advantage, yeah. advantage. When you talk about triumph, that's totally different. But in terms of advantage, look, you can the, the potion can heal a strain or a wound. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the potion, you can prepare an extra dose. You mm-hmm. can reduce the time to prepare by half. You can save your ingredients mm-hmm. or you can increase the duration of the potions effect by one round yep. if applicable. That's, mm-hmm. that's it. That's really all you can do raw for advantage. Yeah. So yes. it's, you know, I, we didn't feel it would be too terribly overpowered if you get a lot of advantage out of it. Mm. But again, like with all the talents we create, this really needs to get play tested. Um, if 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 somebody came back to me and said, you know what, after play testing it, this should really be tier three, mm-hmm. I would not be surprised. Right, makes sense. Makes sense. So let us know. Um, and and <clears throat> holy, it, these talents that we've created, as well as some of the other advice we've given, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, we're we're going to write all that up and have it available in beautifully downloaded formatting. Yes. Yes, we are. 
<laughs> even though I'm a couple behind again. Um, so, uh, yeah, they can definitely do that uh, by just going to the website, which is forgegenesis.com, uh, under our resources section. So uh, go and take a look at that. It's right at the top. It's listed in uh, numerical order of our episodes. So uh, f- so go and take a look at that. And, uh, yeah, it's really cool. Awesome. Well, this has been an, a very fun discussion on Alchemy, man. Very much so. I was so looking forward to that because, I mean, it, it's one step down from magic. And I think that that's the, that will be a bit of a – a bit of a hurdle for some people because it's uh, especially those who are connected so strongly with with the Indian Pathfinder is that there has always been this connection to magic where Genesis doesn't uh, it doesn't have that um, that strong link. It's uh, it's there specifically to say well alchemy can pretty much do anything. But potions can't necessarily do everything that magic does. As we said, they can do some of what magic can, just suckier. (laughs) (laughs) To go through those five rules, absolutely. (laughs) So take a look at that. Those five rules will be listed on that document as well. So uh, so take a look at that. And, um, you know, let us know if there is anything else that you want us to, to talk about in die casting, whether it be talents, whether it be skills or anything rule related, let us know uh, and uh, we'll get it on the show. So, uh, so yeah. Well, Huli, after the very positive reception that we had last episode, I think it is time that we welcome a special guest back to the show for another edition of Eberron Reforged. Eberron Reforged. Genesis is an amazing system, and fans and players the world over are taking this incredible building block, narrative dice framework, and applying it to many genres and existing settings. And here at The Forge, we are all about giving you the tools you need to bring your favorite settings to the table with this system. And while that often means original content, this is not always the case. In fact, for truly dedicated fans of existing settings, finding a way to bring those settings to the Genesis system is a labor of love that can breathe new life and new gaming experiences into what seems like familiar territory. And to that end, we are proud to welcome back to the show Eric Strumpel, or DM Eric, one of the brains behind the Geek Pantheon and Knowledge Check podcast, but uh, perhaps more notably to our listeners as a GM and producer of D20 Radio's own actual play podcast, Eberron Renewed. And after concluding their first three-year Eberron campaign in 5th edition D&D, the Eberron Renewed crew decided, starting with episode 161, to launch an entirely new Eberron campaign, but using the Genesis RPG. Converting Eberron into Genesis uh, compatible setting required a tremendous amount of planning and design from Eric and the rest of the cast. And in our Eberron Reforged segment, Eric joins us to deep dive into this conversion, taking a look at the choices made in terms of crafting species, careers, talents, skills, and much, 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 much more. Eric, welcome back to the show, brother. Thanks for having me again, guys. I guess the first time went well enough. <laughs> it did. It did. It was great. Um, sorry, I, I wasn't there for that one, and I almost missed this one too. Bloody COVID. But anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> oh man. So, dude, Eric, la- last episode we we got into the details behind skill selection um, for for your Genesis Eberron conversion. Uh, but you you teased this last time, 
because tonight, now that we understand the process behind why the skills that you have chosen are what they are and why you've chosen them, we, you said we were going to take those skill choices to the next logical step in your setting conversion by discussing careers. Mm. Yes. <sighs> I mean, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what? This is the very next thing that most creators are going to do after you got your skills determined, right? You're going to divvy them up into role-based careers that you know, can guide character play and, and progression, yeah? Yeah, I mean, once you have the list, now it's time to group everything up and, and figure out what kind of makes sense. And, and more importantly, as we talked with the skill stuff, uh, where that's the very broad, like, here are the things you need for the campaign. Once you start crafting careers, it's very much, here's the type of heroes that this campaign requires mm. or the setting requires if you're building a whole setting. Mm. So, I mean, like, career, and to that end, careers are one of really the two primary touchstones for players to define their character. I mean, with species archetype being the other, right? I mean, those those career skills that are available, just mechanically speaking, for each career, they they guide skill focus because of the reduced XP cost. And I mean, while it's true in Genesis that a PC could take ranks in any skill, just about, I mean, at just an increased XP cost, most players do stand, tend to stick to their career skill list. Um, but but I think it's because it's more than that, kind of as you alluded to. It's, it's that that the the type of hero is that how you said it yeah. you know this is this is the type of hero you're wanting in your campaign you know what 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 motivates them i think is a as a strong strong guide for players so i want to i want to talk about this because i want to know you know if if that's the starting point for you what types of heroes you wanted to see in this campaign but first i have to ask you a question yes <laughs> the question the question <laughs> Um, which I, I know the answer to, but our listeners don't, because you and I had many conversations oh about this. <laughs> um, many, many conversations about this. Um, so the the expanded players guide introduced the concept of career specializations and corresponding talent trees as an option in the game, which we all first saw in Star Wars. Right? Did you go the route of creating specializations for your careers, or did you stick with the core rulebook careers and the standard talent pyramid? I ultimately elected to stick with the pyramid uh, system, the talent pyramid, as opposed to specializing. Uh, you both know through many uh, Facebook correspondence and, and video <laughs> chats that uh, even before the EPG was introduced, I was like, I think I think I want to do specializations. Uh, and both of you were like, that is a really bad idea. Uh, <laughs> Um, especially before we had the guidance from the EPG where I was like, yeah, I'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Um, and, and there was conversation with my players to ask them like, Hey, what, what would you all like? Um, because obviously the allure of the, the, the definition that you get with the specialization is very alluring, especially, and I think this is what, where my mentality was coming from when you're coming from D and D. You want to have this clear guideline of what a quote-unquote class is. Um, and, I mean, you all did a great job of breaking that down with, with Sam Stewart on your episode of, of here, let's make a druid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, ultimately, the decision for me came down to um, I'm not going to try to convert D&D classes into Genesis. Rather, I'm going to try and help the players define the role they are going to play in the world and in the story, because those are two very different 
uh, modes of thinking when defining careers for a campaign or a setting. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. Never mind the work involved. <laughs> Never mind the work involved. Well, after y'all's episode, I knocked out like a paladin, a cleric. You I did. was on a real frenzy of, of knocking out spectres, uh, totally untested and probably would have broken the campaign, but you know, they're there. <laughs> and I think this is the, the biggest problem when it comes to uh, using specializations is then, sure, if you've got all the time in the world, uh, you can do that. But the problem is, is that then it has to be play tested. Because yeah. um, with all of the Star Wars stuff that I've done f- with FFG in the past for uh, the playtesting of, I think I've done about six books, seven books or something, that they all go through this massive change and the direction of the trees can turn around because something isn't covered here. And so you have this, uh, it does need a whole heap of playtesting. And because you were basically creating this from from you know, full cloth and then have to go straight away into, into play that you were recording without any opportunity to do major testing. Yeah. I think you made the right choice. <laughs> well, and, and there was an intentional attempt to avoid, and obviously we don't know if we've accomplished this until we get further into the campaign, sure. uh, but there was a moment in our first campaign with D&D 5e where I was very much allowing uh, third party or homebrew material into the campaign and one of the players, Philip, uh, with the character Barrick, some of the magic items that I'd given him early on synergized way too well with a third-party subclass that he took. Mm. And he was just dealing out dozens of points of damage at a very early level. And we had to walk back and say, okay, this is getting eliminated from the game. We need to re- rebuild your character for the past like four levels. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to do that. And with specializations, you set yourself up to have to do that. So, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, well, I, I, I want to return to one thing you said, you know, where you talked about you you didn't want to make a career for every class, right? Yes. And and this is this is the thing, because like Eberron, <clears throat> in all its glory, I mean, it, it was created for third edition D&D. It was recreated for fourth edition D&D. <laughs> and now, just as you guys were actually wrapping up your fifth edition campaign... Yeah. It is there is now an official supplement. It has been created for fifth edition D and D. Okay, mm-hmm. and all of those iterations of the D and D version have a class based system. Okay, that could be analogous to Genesis Careers. But I mean, talk to me more about this. Talk to us more about this. I mean, how did did, did those careers at least inform your decisions and plans at all? And I mean, if so, in what ways? Or did you just scrap it all? What what, what was your process like for this? So. The actual influence of D&D classes on my process we'll actually need to talk about in a future episode when we go over talents, because that's uh-huh. where I allowed D&D classes to manifest themselves in my campaign. My mentality with creating the careers was, what role are you playing in the world and in the story? So an example is Jeff's uh, character. Jeff came to me and said, I want to be a Goliath monk. I was like, awesome. That sounds like a really fun character. What does your character do? And he's like, well, I'm a bodyguard. I I go get protection money, like all this stuff. And so his career isn't monk. His career is enforcer because the skills that he needs on a day-to-day basis are for what he does, not what he's going to become. Um, And so there's like a, a flurry of blows talent and a key points talent. So he can go chase those, but who he is, is an enforcer. Hmm. So 
this is an interesting way to look at it because it's like when in Genesis careers can typically be, if you look at other settings, can be grouped into a few very tropes or roles that are common to most RPG settings. I mean, and Huli, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, mm. Look, you've basically got combative, which is sometimes with a focus on melee or ranged combat. Uh, you've got social, I guess, with, with you know their various focuses. Technical, depending on on you know what sort of a setting, and that can vary wildly from you know um, mechanics all the way you know down to someone who is crafting swords or whatever else, uh, or a doctor, or a doctor, mm-hmm. exactly. And then we've got um, you know the the rogues and whatever else in a sneaky kind of kind of sort of mode, I guess. And then you've got well, you've then got the magical kind. Um, and you could almost break that up into depending on what, how many magical forms that you have. And I know from the last episode that um, you spoke about that you are just using the three base plus verse as well, I think. Is that correct? And we created one called Artifice. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you've almost got five subcategories, I guess, um, under this magical banner of, of the sort of um, careers that you've got. So talk to us about, you know, what roles that you wanted to ensure that they were filled in Eberron and why? Well, like I said, this was all very much based in uh, in conversations with the players and what what do you want to play? What role do you want to have? Because I had expressed to them that the the tone of the campaign was going to be gritty, urban environment. You're working for the mob, essentially. Um, and it's going to be a very uh, street level campaign. Hmm. And so, like I said, if, if we were doing more of a high fantasy and Jeff still said, I want to be a Goliath monk, his answer to, but what do you do in the world would have been different. So ultimately the career would have been different. Hmm. Um, so it was very much crafting the careers around the player's answers, but also fitting the tone of the game. Hmm. So like, um, Hmm. So, for example, um, Randy is a a mage who does not belong to any kind of arcane school or anything like that. He, in D&D terms, is a sorcerer, Um, but he's an arcane user who doesn't learn his magic. Um, So that can manifest itself in a lot of ways, depending on the tone of your campaign, from hermit to sorcerer to sage. Uh, But for us, it was the name of his career is Hedge Mage. He's a mage who does not belong to a house. And so... Um, so that that's was kind fantastic. of fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> but, but dude, th- you know, and this, this just occurred to me because what you're describing, what you've really created, at least from a career standpoint, is you didn't create Eberron careers. You created Sharn underworld careers. Mm. Yeah. When you get down to it. Mm. And I think that's brilliant and something I think a lot of GMs should take note for because you weren't trying to publish something. You're trying to create a fun game for your players, right? Yeah. And and this is a huge differentiation between crafting something for table play versus publication. Yeah, you're able to be much more specific when you're when you're trying to craft a specific story for your table, as opposed to creating something for mass consumption. Because obviously, like I've I've kicked the can around a bit of like taking all the stuff and publishing it, removing all of the the copywritten stuff. But even if I were to do that, it would be very much have to be branded as an urban fantasy setting. Like it couldn't just be a sword and board fantasy thing because that tone doesn't fit. 
So, so yeah, the, the narrow focus helped a lot. Interesting. Did you, did you create, did you only create careers that your players would use or did you go in, go for any beyond that? Um, as of right now, I've only got the careers that the players are currently using. I've been focused more on fleshing out the, uh, races and archetypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I've spent some of my energy now that we're actually playing to like flesh out the world a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely on my list to go and create more stuff because these, these skills translate to different careers, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big one, Chris, you know, artificers are like one of the things of Eberron, like using magic in a technical capacity, but I didn't create an artificer career. Like Philip's character is a mage, right? Because Philip's character fixes machines in a casino and works works with magical machinery. Hmm. If another player came to me and said, I want to be like an inventor, like a tinkerer, like kind of a mad scientist, they would also have the artifice skill just the flavor would be different. So, mm-hmm. And I suppose that's what you can really do with careers because you, you're not limited by anything else other than skill selection. Um, yeah. It's not as though that like when you've got careers in Star Wars that you've got, well, these ones have to have these ones that we've selected for you. And then when you do your extra specializations, then we've got these other ones and that's the thing that changes all the way through. It's only one single step, and that's just basically choose eight skills. And as long as you're doing it in a balanced sense, there isn't really anything else that you need to do. And you're only you're mixing in with theme then, and that's your only limitation. So yeah, and realistically, you don't even need to look at that ever again until somebody's changing character. Yeah. Well, and, and another uh, thing I did for my players, uh, kind of a half step towards specialization, is I did create a like recommended talents. So like a, a couple of tier one and tier two talents. Mm-hmm. It's like if you want to start down a path that makes reasonable sense for this career and you want to continue this tone, mm-hmm. this is a good place to start. Right. So I did do that for them in addition to building out the careers. Mm-hmm. But I think a great example of this sense of like the role in the world and what do they do and how for D&D players, sometimes the wires can get crossed is the scoundrel career in Realms of Terranoth, which is actually what Trevor took. Because upon first blush, you look at that career list and you see scoundrel, you think rogue, like D&D rogue. But melee isn't a career skill for them. Mm. Like they don't have the dagger that they, well, they have a dagger physically as part of their starting equipment, but that's not what they specialize in. And it's because like, well, they're a scoundrel. They're not looking for a fight. Mm. They have charm they have deception (laughs) they have stealth like they're gonna run away and then if they're in a real pinch they're gonna try to shoot you from a distance but scoundrels have no interest in stabbing if you want that make an assassin career and and have that be the focus if you're worried about sneak attack and all that kind of stuff now if 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 you had come to huli and i and said look i want to do specializations with talent trees darn it i it's important to me i want to do them (laughs) and you had done them, that's where you change the narrative. Because yeah. at that point, when you got specializations, it's like, okay, going back to the art, like, that's where you create a career called Artificer. Yeah. But then you have a specializations of Mage Right, Inventor, Tinkerer, right? Mm. Yeah. Where, where you get in there. You have a, a career called Rogue, but then you've got specializations of Scoundrel assassin right (laughs) etc etc where where you're getting that differentiation but when you're when you're building the when you're using the talent pyramid method it behooves you to in lieu of having 20 specialization options 
21 specialization options to instead potentially have 21 career options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so very interesting. So Eric, can you, can you lay it out for us? I mean, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but um, I mean, what, what careers did you end up with for your players? And can you tell us what those, what the skill lists were for each? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so start with the one that I probably spoke the most about with Jeff's enforcer career. So the career skills for this particular um, career are athletics, brawl, coercion, discipline, knowledge underworld, melee heavy, streetwise, and vigilance. Woo. Um, so trying trying to create that huge, hulking, beefy person that like you don't want to mess with um, was very much the the attempt there. With uh, Eris, Philip's character, um, which initially was just trying to build an artificer, but took a step back and realized Mage Rite is the way to go. Then going with uh, alchemy, artifice, cool, ranged, knowledge adventuring, uh, which is what I created as we talked about the artificer's knowledge skill uh, that it pings off of. Mechanics, piloting, and skullduggery. Uh, once again, reflecting like kind of the the rough and tumble nature and needing to be able to uh, to get out of scraps and be able to tinker with uh, with magical things. Um, and then lastly, the hedge mage, which is Randy's uh, character. Right, um, right. Uh, with so the the idea here being uh, an arcane user that doesn't have any formal training and doesn't really have anybody to go to, somebody that would need to uh, survive on their own. Um, in an urban environment, I went with alchemy, arcana, charm, knowledge, lore, medicine, perception, resilience, and vigilance. Um, and like I said, I created a list of talents that was like, hey, look at these. But that's that's what I did for them. Mm. Dude, some inter- interesting choice with medicine. Yeah, my, my thought process there was, once again, surviving on your own, needing to be able to take care of yourself. And um, arcane... Arcana can't heal. Alchemy takes time and resources, but medicine is just your basic like, oh, no, I'm in a bad spot. I've gone down this alley. Let me patch myself up real quick. Uh, Like somebody that's on their own, I feel like medicine makes sense for that to be a skill that they they are intentional about learning. So interesting. Interesting. Were were your players cool with the skill options, the skill lists available? I mean, obviously they can take anything, but obviously this is the <laughs> the, the, the career skills. Or did you have any did you have any grumblings or gripes? Um only one. Um I can't remember. Um it was upon Philip's request that Skullduggery gets added to Mage Right. Um I can't remember what was in there before at this point. Uh, many moons have gone by. Uh, but, but yeah, Skullduggery. And once, once he made his case, it made total sense that, yeah, artificers like use tinkerers tools, they use thieves tools. Um, so, so yeah. Pick and lock, pick and locks. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah. And then obviously I just, uh, I didn't make any changes to scoundrel, um, in, uh, realms of Terranoth. I just pulled that whole cloth out of the book, uh, cause Trevor was happy with it, which made me happy. Everybody was happy. <laughs> so. So, Eric, did you consider doing something that some of the people on the Foundry have started to do, which in their specializations, that they've given them like a special ability on top of just uh, just their career skills? I know that that can sometimes limit things. 
um, from being able to do it a little bit more freely, like the way that you're doing uh, the skill selection. Um, so based more on what the players want to do rather than having a, here's a list of all the skills you choose, um, that uh, it, so instead giving them one special ability to really sort of bring out the, um, the career a little bit more. Did he consider that at all? I didn't consider it. Um, but what ended up happening is um, heroic abilities filled that role. Like they all took a heroic ability that just further amplified their career. Um, so Jeff took, I believe it's Unleash, where he can just decimate a group of minions uh, at the drop of a hat. Um, Philip took a signature weapon with uh, a unique artificery type weapon. Uh, so, they, so they all picked something that further reinforced their role in the world, um, which was good. But I didn't give them anything additionally. So, so nice. Very good. Well, dude, heroic abilities are intense on their own. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's wonderful, man. That's, that's, that's great. I think my favorite, just a quick aside, is all the facts is what Randy took, which um, he <laughs> his character was not a magic user before uh, somebody set fire to his bar and his wife died in the fire. Hmm. And ever since that point, he has, A, been able to use magic and, B, heard her voice in his head. And she was the smart one in the relationship. So <laughs> the reason he has a four intelligence is because his wife is speaking to him constantly. So um, and that's how his all the facts manifest as he starts mumbling like, oh, what's that? What's that? And she explains the situation to him. So. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. One yeah, of the yeah. things that I found out in uh, my campaign that I'm doing with uh, Legacy Fire that I've converted over um, is that uh, one of my players has that heroic ability because we're doing it in Terranoth, um, is that uh, they make sure that they're saving up their uh, their story points until the, <laughs> until the end <laughs> of the session or make sure that they've got two and they've gone, are there any questions we have? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, so yes, get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, Eric, um, this has been a very enlightening conversation, and it's been fascinating to peel back the layers and see your thought process. Any final thoughts for any other uh, other GMs out there doing their own conversions in terms of, of career selection? Um, you know, as as based on the process that you've gone through for for this urban campaign for Eberron. Yeah, I mean, it, once again, if if you're just setting up for your campaign, um, the best thing to do is is ask your players who they are in the world and how they relate to the world around them, because that's a much more helpful and interesting way to approach building careers as opposed to they want to be a druid. So, what career skills do I need to plug together to make a druid, and mm -hmm. or just go pull the primalist out of Terranoff? Um, <laughs> But that that only gets you so far because they're not going to feel like a druid until they start taking talents to actually get those abilities. Yeah. And that, I think, it was the shifting point for me was realizing I'm having to build like four talents to make Jeff a monk. Why would I worry about making him a monk uh, in his career? So, so yeah, mm. just take take it much more from the idea of what role are the heroes going to be playing in their world? Not what class are they going to be in 150 XP later? <laughs> Very well put. Very, Very well advice. put. Yeah, absolutely. So Eric, I can't wait for you to return for us. Um, 
I, you know, we, 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 we talked about this very briefly and you mentioned getting into talents, but you know, as we said earlier, there's really two touchstones for players. One is your career and the other is of course your species or archetype. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe when you return to us, we could start breaking down some of the uh, Eberron specific species that you've created. I would love to. That'd be awesome. That would be <laughs> awesome indeed. All right. Well, Eric, thank you very much uh, for coming on to the show again. Um, and uh, it's my first time managing to talk to you on the show because I missed yeah. the last one. So it was great. <laughs> <laughs> So Thanks yes, for having me, guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Chris, I think it's time to ask some questions of us that have come from our listeners. What do you think? Well, I think that's a marvelous idea. Should we uh, take a gander I think we under should. the hammer? Yeah, we should. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as it impacts both rules, content, creation, and play. And we've got some great questions this week, as we always do. Uh, Now, of course, if you would like to join and get your questions to run at the top of the queue, as well as getting to vote in the awards, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, just visit patreon.com forward slash forgegenesis and become a tier two supporter today. All right, Chris, what's our first question? Comes in via Discord from Defrost303, who says the following. Mm -hmm. Regarding the aim rule on page 98, Mm -hmm. in the second bullet point, what we typically refer to as the called shot, Mm -hmm. a player may aim at a specific target location by spending a maneuver and adding two setback dice to the check. Mm. Spending another maneuver, as we know, reduces the setback by one. I've used this rule several times in my games for players to interact with the environment, uh, attack the weak spot of a crumbling column, or maybe shoot the emergency brake of a train engine with a six-shooter in an upcoming Weird West setting you may or may not have heard of. (laughs) Shout out to Eberron Renewed um, and Dusters and Dragons. When it comes to combat, the rule suggests disarming opponents or targeting limbs to hobble them. However, no actual mechanics are given for the suggested hobbling of a target by aiming at the limbs. And headshots are, very likely intentionally, missing. Mm. Considering that one may add up to two boost by aiming generically and thus increase the likelihood of greater damage or activating crits and item qualities or additional magic effects, this maneuver seems underwhelming for combat purposes. Would it be out of the question to allow a successful called shot to a limb to automatically stagger or disorient target? How do you handle headshots? Uh, Looking forward to your suggestions. That's a good question. <laughs> Man, you want, want to want to talk about narrative role play versus the D and D mentality? <laughs> it's a bit of that. At least from my perspective, I've had to deal with this problem on on more than one occasion, and and mainly from people who were looking for you know the extra bang for their buck, um, often literally. Um, <laughs> there's several parts to this discussion, and and it's a fairly lengthy one. Um, but I, I think I'd really like to tackle it. Um, and basically all of it I'd like to call the called shot conundrum. Now, this is one of several controversial rules in the Genesis role-playing game. And it's caused purely because people forget about the narrative nature of Genesis. 
and uh, instead they expect everything to have some sort of mechanics behind it. Uh, and I think you mentioned that before, Chris. Um, yes, this rule is a little bit vague. And I think that the reason why it's vague is because of the narrative nature of the game. Mm. So if we want to talk about rules as written, uh, the rule that Defrost 303 is talking about appears on page 98 of the Genesis Core Rules under the rules for aiming. Now in there it states, uh, target a specific item carried by the opponent or a specific part of the target or opponent. This could allow the character to attempt to strike or shoot a weapon from an opponent's hand, for example, or target an opponent's limb to hobble them. If the character spends one manoeuvre aiming to do this, their next combat check suffers two setback die. If they then spend two consecutive manoeuvres aiming, the combat check suffers one setback die instead. Now, by raw, that's the, that's the rule directly out of the core rulebook. So it, it offers two options. One, target a specific item carried by the opponent to strike or shoot that weapon from their hand. And two, target a specific part of the target or opponent's limb to hobble them. Now, I think that the thing that people get caught up in is two words. For example... Um, and, and I think that they think that that becomes an open-ended thing. A lot of the time, these rules are written in such a way that there is word count that has to be taken into consideration. And sometimes that can create confusion, especially if they've left something out or something's hit the, the cutting room floor. Um, in this case, because of that, the rules have become a little bit vague. And there's no mechanic to to alter it so what we have to do is we have to look at them one at a time and come up with what the spirit of the rule is and this is my opinion of course and chris your opinion may may vary um very differently um to, to mine now with the first part we're looking for the means to disarm the opponent now those rules already uh exist uh and uh they, they provide the means to do that with the use of three advantages uh, from table uh, one dash, sorry, 1.6-2, which is spending advantage and triumph in combat. And that's on page 104. Now, if we look at that table, the fifth option states, force the target to drop a melee or ranged weapon they are wielding. So this is exactly what we're looking for. So, by taking that, uh, we can see that it takes a manoeuvre to get two setback die. And those three elements, the manoeuvre and the, and the two setback, gain a specific effect, w which is quite reasonable in this case, that it's a specific effect such as causing someone to drop the item. So, that's going to be our baseline, is three advantages equals a manoeuvre and two setback, or two manoeuvres and one setback. So, and yes, I know it's hardly a, a hypothesis given the fact that there's only one example, but, but let's look a little bit further. So if we look at the second part of the cord shot rule, this is the part that causes the great confusion 
as it refers to hobbling the target. Hobbling is not a condition in the rules. However, by looking at table uh, the same table, uh, 1.6-2, with advantage and um, triumphs being spent in combat, the term appears in, again, the three advantages expenditure, uh, which says hobbling them temporarily with a shot to the leg. It also suggests that the effect should be temporary and not too excessive. It suggests examining the critical injury table for options, with the most obvious being distracted, um, where they cannot perform a free manoeuvre until the end of the next turn, and slow down, where they can only act during the last allied initiative slot on the next turn. Either one of those options is going to be suitable, but the simplest, for, for my, in my opinion, is the distracted condition. Now, what I'm going to impart now is basically a house rule, but it really only changes the existing rule slightly by tightening up the wording, and it may satisfy those, those players who really want some mechanical benefit to doing that in the first place. So, it should say, or my suggestion is to say, target a specific item carried by the opponent or a specific part of the target or opponent. This allows the character to attempt to strike or shoot a weapon from an opponent's hand, causing them to drop that weapon. Alternatively, they may target an opponent's limb to hobble them, causing the opponent to lose their free manoeuvre until the end of their next turn. If the character spends one manoeuvre aiming to do this, their next combat check suffers two setback die. Um, if they spend two consecutive manoeuvres aiming, the combat check suffers one setback die instead. This is a pretty simple solution. Um, it does, however, limit the narrative effects of a combat check where aiming is going to play a part. It can have a major effect on a given encounter, especially when it comes to, to vehicles. And I'll talk about vehicles in a tick. But for me, if I want to represent getting a perfect shot, I'd consider using the A manoeuvre to get my boost die. Statistically, boost die are slightly better. Um, and with the chance of, of extra successes and extra advantages, I'm more likely to get what effect I want through damage from the successes and additional effects or other circumstances in the scene from the use of spending advantages. Now, if you need a bit more of an explanation, look at it this way. In any combat, it's assumed you're shooting at the largest body mass, which just happens to be the torso and the head, um, as the others just kind of, you know, flop around like an untrained seal. So when you're aiming, you're, you're you're not necessarily aiming for a specific shot. You're aiming for the largest mass of, uh, on the body, which unfortunately is, is where the humans store our major organs. So aiming with, with the two setback assumes you're trying to hit one of those limbs flopping about, um, an object they're carrying, or more specifically, the limb that is carrying that said item. So... That's that's just a different way to consider it. Now, on to vehicles, and I'll, I'll ver talk very briefly about this. 
Um, nowhere in the Genesis rules does it talk about hitting something very specific on a vehicle. That is something that seems to have been generated from I don't know where. Um, it may be on a forum listing somewhere, but it's certainly not in the Genesis rules, and it's certainly not in the Genesis errata. What the rules do talk about is size difference. So if we're going to be talking about a stationary object on a vehicle, like what uh, what Mr. Frost mentioned before, like the 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 lever on a, on a train, I would think increasing the difficulty by one or maybe even two is a better option. And if you think that it's a dramatically appropriate, maybe even an upgrade as well as the increase to the difficulty. And then when we're talking about a train, give it setback for the train, you know, moving about. So that's my thoughts. I know that was long-winded. Sorry, Chris. What What do you think? Well, no, I think, like, as far as the train goes, that's the reason the called shot exists, in in my opinion. So if you're talking about hitting hitting a very specific inanimate object, that's the reason for the called shot. I mean, that's that's when you use that mechanic for it, that, that particular side of the aim mechanic. Mm-hmm. In terms of his general question about using it in combat against individuals, mm-hmm. I've always handled it narratively. If one of my players, it's like, it's like... And I've had especially new players like, well, could I, you know, once they understand that rule, their eyes light up and they think they've solved some mystery of the universe. And they're like, you know, oh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to call shot his head or I'm going to his hand and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to, it's like, it's, it's, it's narrative role playing. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's highly narrative. I mean, the bottom line is that a shot from a gun to you is going to kill you. Yes. Okay. Your wound threshold, if it's, 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 you know, if you get hit three times before you exceed your threshold, that doesn't mean you've taken three bullets. Hmm. It means that you've, you know, worn down your defenses or your exhaustion level. Or you've been grazed or something like that. Okay. Hmm. So you just kind of have to get that through to your players and, and, you know, if they want to call shot particular body parts, there should be a reason for it. You know, if you want, if you want to try and, you know, I, I've had players say, I want to try and shoot the gun out of his hand. I'm like, it's like, wow. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll try that with an incredibly increased difficulty or, you know, or you can try a called shot maneuver and we'll see if it, if it gets pulled off, you know, maybe a combination of both. Hmm. If you're okay with it and your player's okay with it, I might allow you to do a called shot on a limb, but the, the only real, I mean, and, but the thing is I would let you deal damage. Like normally mm. at that point, you would deal your normal damage to the target. But mm. if you targeted like an arm or a leg, I would allow you to success might mean that you add some setback or upgrade the difficulty of the next check that character makes mm-hmm. that mm. uses that appendage. Okay. Um, but I mean, that's, that's probably about as far as I would take it. The biggest problem that I've got is that there is already rules for disarming. You've yeah. got three advantages and you can disarm someone. Yep, absolutely. So what is the point of having the the called shot? I know that it's certainly not to disarm, even though that they mention that by name. And this is where I think that the rules actually fall down a little bit with regards to that. I know what their intention was. But I don't know whether it's actually sort of no 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 no. I, I can I can explain it. So so the the problem there is three advantage to disarm is not something you can choose to do. Right. That's the difference. Okay. Mm. It's a benefit. It's like oh, I happen to disarm you. Okay. Mm. 
but that wasn't my goal when I made the attack. Mm. Calling out disarmament for called shot it means that's my goal. And if you're going to do that, uh, that means I'm not dealing damage to you either. Mm. So, so there's more than one way to disarm someone. I think mm. that's that's where the confusion might lie. But mm. one, one one is proactive on the part of the player; the other is reactive. Mm. Um, I think the the biggest thing that uh, that the that our our listener needs to take into consideration is whatever he determines is the best course of action is going to be the best course of action for the rest of the campaign. And it has to be <laughs> the same sort of thing for, as I said before, it's good enough for the goose, it's good enough for the gander. So it yeah. has to be able to be applied on both sides. Now, as soon as you bring that argument into it, that normally quiets everybody down. Because otherwise, it's just going to be a case of, right, well, we're going to be constantly doing headshots then. And that will end your campaign pretty quickly. Because if everybody was doing a, a, a headshot, nobody would probably be hitting all that much anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, secondly, um, that characters would be dying. I mean, what sort of effect does a headshot have anyway? I, I know. Uh, it, damage, it's sort of a high strong – in a narrative system, that's not how, you know, we, we don't have body locations and stuff like that for a reason because it is a narrative system. I think, you know what, maybe this is a way to cap off, cap it off. <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody says, I want to do a called shot to the head, great. That's called an attack. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because <laughs> that's really what you're shooting at, yep. the head of the body. Yep. 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 There you go. And, and if you want to have some sort of specific effect, then you need to start looking at that uh, that. Um, cold shot mechanic, and if you, and if you're and if you're looking if you're looking to recreate that iconic cinematic scene where the hero makes the one shot to the guy's head and and drops him, hmm. that's a case of a triumph being rolled with a very high crit mm-hmm. or incredible damage that just exceeded the threshold at that particular moment that's in right. one hit. And yes, you can do that in this system, and it happens frequently. <laughs> Diplomatic community. <laughs> Just been revoked. <laughs> All right. What is our next question, man? Uh, all right. Our next question comes from Matt Natias, uh, who asks via Facebook. Hi, guys. Uh, love the show and all the great work you do. I'm still new to the narrative dice system and had a question. Per the rules, a character gets one action and one maneuver. Two maneuvers if spending stress. What happens if you would really need to use two skill actions to complete the action? For example, a PC wants to do some sort of crazy acrobatic like flipping over the bar counter and bringing his sword down on the enemy. Since the PC could easily fail the flip, I would think that would be a straight agility check. However, it is also a melee attack. The rules state that the maneuvers include moving while skill slash combat checks are actions. Here are the potential options I can think of. And he lists three. The first one is, it's a melee check. Upgrade the difficulty from average to hard. Three purple dice. Uh, don't use upgrade that way. That's my first advice. Uh, you increase the difficulty, not upgrade the difficulty. So um, he's suggest- his first one there is suggesting increase the difficulty by one. Number two is 
Amelie Chek add a setback die, though this doesn't seem right as there is nothing in the environment bearing down, affecting the difficulty. And number three is agility check. Set the difficulty and then if the PC succeeds, proceed with Amelie Chek. This doesn't feel right, though, as it violates the one action rule. Uh. I'm thinking the answer is option one. However, I may be wrong. Oh, and this is where it gets interesting. I think I'm, uh, the answer is option one. However, I may be wrong. I'm also coming from the D&D 5e, so my interpretation may be too much trying to compare the two. But just unsure how to handle. Any feedback would be great. Thanks. Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matt, my brother. I don't care if you're playing 5th edition D&D. If you're making the player roll to vault over the bar in an acrobatic flip, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Why are you? Th- this is, uh, God, I've had so many conversations with DM Eric about this. I, I hate this. I don't know why D20 does this because it's not, it shouldn't even be done in D20. Mm-hmm. Never make the player roll for anything that doesn't have an exciting or narrative consequence. Oh, he doesn't get over the bar. I mean, what, like, why are you, why are you making him roll for that? Why? Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, <clears throat> this is like, I, I don't understand. It's like, if, if he says he wants to do a backflip over the bar and he's got a rank in acro in, in coordination or athletics, why are you making him roll for it? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 so, so first of all, it, it's like the idea of checking for traps every five feet in in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, uh, you have to uh, you need to roll for each square. It, it's like on the map. It's like I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. So, look, I'll talk about Genesis here. But first of all, I gotta say, man, if your dungeon master is making you do that in Fifth Edition, they're doing it wrong. Okay, you only roll when there's a consequence, a meaningful and interesting consequence for failure. It's like it's like it's like I see this in D and D all the time. It's like, all right, uh, you walk in the room, give me perception checks. Mm-hmm. Everybody makes a perception check. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, you see a, a guy at the bar, and he's got this on, and they just describe the scene. Right. Why did you make them roll? There's no point. No. Like if they failed their perception checks, what I mean, like you just, I mean, only make them roll when it's, when it matters, when failure matters. Otherwise, mm-hmm. why? Mm-hmm. So, okay. Now in terms of Genesis, even more so than D&D, which does have very discrete systems, Genesis is very narrative, man. You, 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 you want to accomplish as much as you can with a single check. What is the action that person is undertaking? It's an attack. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, First of all, do you have to ask yourself in, in in your example, do you even like he presents these three options and I'm like, first of all, you shouldn't be making multiple checks. You should be making one. Yep. Okay. And I mean, honestly, I think I think if you have to do something, option two is the best. That's what setback dice are for, situational yep. circumstances. Okay. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, like, why? Even why? Like the player says he wants to vault over the bar. Why? Why 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 penalize the player for cool for doing something cool like that? And if you if you really want to represent it in the game, yeah, man, throw some setback die on the actual attack. You know, you 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 flipped over the bar and you know slipped on a puddle of beer and your hand fell out from under you and you you couldn't get the attack off properly. Okay, 
your 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 decision to do fancy footwork and and vaulting hindered ultimately hindered your ability to attack and that's what the setback dice represent Mm -hmm. um but yeah man that's what setback dice are there for and also i mean yeah yeah there there i mean there that that's my long-winded answer (laughs) that's pretty much what i said um uh, that yeah Uh, and i've actually had this happen in um in a game that i was running uh i actually think if people want to go back and listen uh which they can do on youtube uh, that um, I, I did that with a with an action that GM Caitlin took with her orc when she was playing it uh, when I was doing the dice pool. That she said, "I want to run across the road and I want to attack this creature." And the way that she sort of described, she was sort of like jumping over the cart and whatever else. And I said, "Okay, just add a setback die because she had to jump over the cart." And just in case that something came up on the the, the dice, which um, indicated that like a threat mainly, that um, that maybe that was sort of she slipped a little bit, and that's the reason why that she didn't get as good a swing in as she wanted to. It's for narrative purposes, so that you can use the dice to tell the story. So that is the best way. There is no other way uh, to uh, to do it, in my opinion. So I agree. Yeah. <laughs> But but that's the beauty about the narrative dice system. If you if you Matt says an example, you know, it, it, it's possible the PC could fail to flip. Maybe it's an inexperienced PC or something like that. And back to his flip example. Let's say you succeed with a bunch of threat. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, you got the attack off, but you failed the flip. Okay. Mm. So you came across looking like a total jabroni. You flopped yourself over the bar. You still managed to get the the slash off, mm-hmm. but you landed prone. Right. Okay. Because you failed the flip, and that's you know it, it, try and roll things in to it to make as 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 you know not not overboard, but but you know fewer discrete rolls, more meaningful rolls. Mm-hmm. If you've got a player that wants to do multiple things like that in a round, especially mm-hmm. one roll is all you're allowed per round, but use mm-hmm. those setback dice. They're, that's what they're there for to modify that difficulty to represent the crazy things they want to do. If you feel you even need to do that, I don't know what the harm is about just letting the guy vault over the bar. Mm. Um, but you know, uh, again, he's probably talking about a very specific scene. I, I'm not totally privy to what the, what the scenario was, but still, yeah. And yeah, always try to limit things to one check per round. And that also even applies to talents. And I know that we've, we've used a talent, which doesn't necessarily do that. Uh, but for the most part, one check per turn. Otherwise, I mean, players, by the end of three hours, I don't care what anybody says, by the end of three hours or four hours of play in this system, I'm frigging exhausted because of the amount of you've got to come up with another way to spend those um, advantages and threats. If you're adding more dice rolls into the equation, you're just going to burn yourself out after about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the way to play this game. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Good questions, though. <clears throat> Very good questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, Huli, that does, I do believe, bring us to the end of yet another episode. Indeed it does. But we'll be back with a new episode in short order in which we'll return to vehicular badassery with a look at the final of the three Cs, Chasers. And that is, of course, if we don't get a deep dive of Secrets of the Crucible scheduled first. (laughs) 
<laughs> Can't wait to finally get to that. Um, now, as you mentioned, a deep dive into Secrets of the Crucible, uh, and we work to get our guests wrangled. We want your questions about the book. So if you guys have any questions um, or topics related to Secrets of the Crucible, or any other questions, frankly, about Genesis or gaming in general, we want you to contact us. And how can they do that, Huli? They can do that um, by emailing us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or post it up via one of the many social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit by searching at Forge Genesis. We've also been having some great conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel and, of course, truly dedicated conversations with our Patreons on our very own Patreon Discord server. And we would love to hear from you all. Don't forget you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group, where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes, even Spotify. And you can also, as mentioned before, visit us on our website at forgegenesis.com. Well, that's a wrap for us, Chris. Uh, Thank you all for listening, and we hope you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hurley. May your tribes be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good game. Thanks again for listening and uh, for joining us here on The Forge. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains the property of the Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forge.com. Genesis.com.